Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Good morning, listeners, or good afternoon, or good evening. Greetings and salutations. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment, and for that, I am grateful. I'm coming at you live from my rollers in my basement. We just got annihilated by a massive snowstorm here in Colorado as of the time of this recording. So, I'm taking the opportunity to refine my pedaling technique. As you know by now, I'm a huge fan of the rollers. And also, I'm a believer that technique is a keystone performance indicator in cycling. So if you're not paying attention to your technique, you're not working on kids and supple muscle, I believe you are missing the boat, leaving performance on the table. And in any case, today's conversation is with Jerry Gerlich. Jerry is a colleague of mine. He's a Steve Hogg certified bike fitter. He's based in Austin, Texas. He's also a musician and a former member of a rock and roll band. He gets to tell us all about that stuff. And if all goes well, we're going to post a photo of Jerry during his rock and roll days on our Twitter drop, excuse me, our Instagram drop when that goes out. Maybe it'll go on the Twitters too. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that stuff. We'll see what happens, but... I recommend you check it out. You probably don't want to miss that. It's priceless. Without further prognostication about the bush, I will leave you with the conversation I had with Jerry Gerlich. Thanks for listening. Be well. Talking about bike fitting, it's like my perspective has been that kind of a maximalist perspective, I'll say, or like uh, anything that I could possibly use during a fit, I'll store, I'll squirrel it away in this little box or this right, right. case or whatever, because it's like, if you might need that little wedge of plastic that you cut off that other wedge to might be the perfect thing to sit on somebody's heel when their footbed's crushed or whatever. And so you do all those things and you... Then after 12 years, you end up with a lot of crap, right? <laughs> and all that stuff had to come out of the office and go, and there was nowhere to go. I'm not going to buy a storage unit. Like I'm really opposed to those things. No offense to anyone who has one. My mother-in-law actually has one, but I'm not buying a storage unit. I'm just not doing it. So everything went in my garage. So the cars are out. The stuff is everywhere. There's like saddles and handlebars and fit platforms and trainers and trainer parts and wedges and tape and you know, all the things, right? I mean, I don't that, have that, a cheese grater. That box, box of, that box of one-inch spacers that you just know someday you're going to use. They're literally in the car right now. They're going to donate it to cycles. <laughs> you nailed it. That's exactly right. I got a bunch of Pinarello stuff in my garage, seven bikes and two Velotrons. And yeah. they're not even supporting the. I have two Velotrons. You still haven't got rid of those Velotrons. <laughs> Who needs a Velotron? <laughs> Jerry Gerlich at jerrybikefitting.com, something like that. 
jerrybikefit at gmail.com. Jerrybikefit at gmail.com. You're looking for a yeah. Veltron. Good price. Right. The frames look great. The, uh, <laughs> the the wheels look great. Nothing's rubbing. I just don't have any of the software to run it. And I don't no. know that SRAM's going to offer it. So right. who knows? Maybe one, maybe one day I'll, I'll hook them together and right. run double flywheels and build something into the ground and run a roller <laughs> off of it or something. something. I don't know. Something super, yeah. super crazy. Right on. So you're in a you're in a big state of what am I going to do with all this stuff? Stick it all in the garage right now and make a new plan. Well, yeah. I'm about five days into there. I'm going to process all that stuff and start to cleanse and re-examine my fit process, re-examine my methodology as a fitter. How do, do I want to be so maximalist or do I want to really trim things down? And I'm definitely leaning in the I'll give you the punchline. I'm the spoiler. I'm definitely trimming things down. Yeah. Um, and to that end, it's been a very powerful kind of cleansing. It's like Paul's talked often in his lectures, Paul check about the first simplicity, which is when you're born, of course. And that's because when you're born, all that matters is mom's boob and whether or not you're warm, right? Right. Whether your nappy is wet, but then you go through life and you accumulate, you accumulate relationships, you accumulate experiences, you accumulate objects, you accumulate places to live, you accumulate shoes you know, cycling shoes and not cycling shoes. You accumulate all these things, dishes and gifts and heirlooms and stuff that you don't know what to do with. And, and now then there's a point in your life when you go through the second simplicity. And I think that model is, that's close to where I'm at. I've done several major points of like letting things go in the past where I've just gone, mm -hmm. man, I need way less. And I just let it go. But I'm definitely in that place right now. So it's been powerful. Then I had a leaky garage also on top of that. It's like, hmm, I'm putting all this stuff in here. I need this to not leak. And I don't know if you know, but we, I know as of the time of this recording, Austin just came out of the deep freezer where you guys had rolling blackouts and no water for a lot of people for a long time. We are about to get absolutely clobbered. I, I about, saw that. Two feet or something of snow? talking about feet, feet of snow oh. at least. And Today, someone told me that up uh, near Estes Park, they're looking at 63 inches is the predicted forecast. Damn. For us, it's about 48. It's like, interesting. Wow. And this is, wow. I rode in shorts about 10 days ago. So. Yeah, that, that cold snap that we went through, and it, it, it was the longest and coldest cold snap. And it was the first time that every single county in Texas was under a weather alert and they had pictures of snow at the beaches places where it like never snowed before and yep. all these pipes were busting and the infrastructure and then i don't know if you read it, something about the political stuff uh with yep. ERCOT with the power stuff and so heads yeah. are rolling there and people are still getting their heads back around it but you know today it was 81 and sunny okay. and i'm getting into my new place uh what you're going through now i was going through in may uh, June 1st, I, we opened this new facility across the street for fittings. And so March, April, and May, you know, there was two months of being at home, you know, mm -hmm. playing with the dog, walking the dog three times a day, trying to stay away from neighbors, getting on each other's nerves. Right. Uh, then there was a month of, you know, Clayton said, we're going to give you a new space so that you don't have to use the whole gym. So my new space is, uh, it's about four times larger than that little area that I, that you saw. Oh, awesome. And it's good for you. The ceiling four foot higher. Nice. So I've got cabinets. I don't have, I don't have a bunch of stuff hanging on the walls anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I had to go through a lot of that purging that you're talking about. Cause they said, look, you get this cabinet, you get this rollaway chest 
mm-hmm. and all of the, everything you have has to go in that. Yeah. So all this old Pinarello stuff. And I had a desk that had three drawers just full of detritus, you know, yeah. a lot of it's Pinarello. One inch headset you know, spacers. You know, <laughs> some half used mountain bike grips. You just might use them. Right. Uh, right. So I went through what you're going through now. It, mm. it took me about two months to get through that. And Gordon still has some stuff stored for me over there, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's a process, dude. Mm-hmm. It's a process. So I'm, I'm really digging. I'm digging the new facility that I have. When you were here, you saw a very small area where I had like the Velotron and a stationary trainer and a mm-hmm. big screen TV. And that, that's where all the adjustments happened. But as yep. far as the functional stuff, the assessment stuff, I could, I could move around to the gym in different areas and use different pieces of equipment. Yep. But I had to walk. And mm-hmm. I had sometimes you'd want to be using a piece of Pilates equipment or an assessment table or someone's on there, uh, total body gym, leg sled, yeah. people can go back and forth. So this new thing that I've got, they, they took the studio across the street, divided into four sections. And my little unit here has pretty much everything I need for a functional assessment, remediation, bike fit adjustments. Uh, there's some specialty equipment that we have over here. So, uh, we have Pilates reformer. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I love working with Pilates reformers to mm-hmm. show people different things and doing squatting type stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I heard uh, when you and Choate were talking about some of the Cybex equipment, part of the way I used to do things 10 or 15 years ago is I'd bring them into the fit facility. I have them warm up on a leg sled, a uh, total body gym. And uh, have them do that for 20 minutes. And that gave me time to take all their pre-fit measurements and make all my notes starting right. out. Right. And then I would bring them in, assess them, see what I see, do some muscle response testing, figure some things out, and then take them to different parts of the gym. Now I can, you know, you and Charlotte were talking about the Cybex machines, the fixed axis machines, yep. you know, the leg, leg extension and the right. calf raise machine, which, you know, you know. If Arnold Schwarzenegger can get a lot done with a 10 pound weight and a step, do you really need a calf raise machine? <laughs> or maybe so, a hundred pound weight and a step. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, there, there. I mean, you go back to pumping iron. He's got literally a 10 or 15 pound weight. Oh, really? But he's doing, he's doing single leg calf raises with immaculate form, uh-huh. 15 pounds in oh, one hand. Cool. Yeah. I've never and seen then that. When you switch, then when you switch hands, it wants to have you, you know, you want to list off into the other direction. So, yep. Yep. So now I'm, I've got some yoga wall, I've got straps, I've got a TRX system, got some kettlebells, some free weights. Uh, uh, I got a dozen Bosu balls, a bunch of yoga mats, yoga blocks, mm-hmm. my assessment table. I can pop up, I've got some wooden yoga blocks. So if I do need to do a little bit of traction, like an inversion table, I can take my assessment table. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just rode, uh, prop some uh, wooden blocks under the ends of the table legs. And so I can get a 10 degree decline okay. if okay. i want to do like a little bit of uh traction on mm-hmm. somebody i got foam rollers uh power plate magnets dremel tool uh, uh the zapper the rotating magnet thing i've got big magnets for the feet <clears throat> yeah headphone i've got three different phones with binaural beat music on them i've got a big tv here mm-hmm. so if i'm going to do a zoom session and i want to look at you on your bike i can blow this thing up and and see it on the big screen and yeah you know, so it's yeah. been a learning curve doing some of the Zoom stuff. And, but now that I'm in my own little deal, uh, my gym clients like the fact that, you know, I can get them started on an activity and tell them we're going to do four sets of this. You're going to go 45 seconds on and 30 seconds off. I'll set a timer. And while they're doing one activity, I'll set up the next activity. Mm. And in the gym, it used to be, especially when the 
you know, busier times of days or weekends, you decide, oh, I want to go do X. I want to go do some chest press or some pull-ups or, mm-hmm. and you go around the corner and, oh man, somebody's got the assisted machine, you know, the, you know, whatever it is you're trying to use, I would say 20% of the time, 30% of the time, it's not available. So you have to improvise. Right. And now the, the workouts and the bike fits initially, because it was so, I had to learn how to adjust and improvise. Initially, the bike fits were a little slower, mm-hmm. but now they're significantly faster. Mm. And I'll set a timer and say, okay, you, we're going to have you ride this for X period of time, five minutes, eight minutes, watch them. And I'll make some little notes on my own. And then once I've watched them and made my notes, I'll ask them questions without telling them about my notes to get an idea of what their perception is, yes, what they're feeling and what's going on. And we'll see if their perception, you know, comes anywhere close to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of compare notes and we go from there. So, yep. uh, you know, it's, things have changed up, but it's like things have gotten a little bit more complex and more streamlined at the same time, if that makes any sense. I have to clean mm-hmm. the place. I have to put all the tools back in the box. There's nothing on the walls hanging out like another place. So I couldn't, I couldn't be, um, you know, kind of haphazard with it. My place was starting to look a little like Steve's. No offense, Steve. No offense, Steve. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, he's the ultimate squirreler. Right? Yeah. But Steve also and, deals with unusual clients that have really unique and challenging problems. You know, clients where he's building up handlebar for somebody who's got cerebral palsy in one arm is, you know, oh. 20 centimeters shorter than the other, for example. So he's got to come up on occasion with extreme solutions. So, yeah. When you're and he'll tell you that looks he'll like tell that. you that the, the the tool case over there on the left, third third drawer down, sitting under the fit kit box is a Dremel tool and a rubber mallet, and That's you know the heat. The way gun, I was, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know where everything is. It's just that there's so much stuff. And I started out with that cleaner aesthetic when the office first opened. Right. When I got back from Steve, I had very little out. I just had one, two magnet bars with you know Allen keys. 10 to 0.5 mil and hex, you know, or hex keys and then um, Torx keys and the, the few essentials. And then slowly, you know, every, every two weeks, like, hmm, I need one of these. Okay. I need this. I need a 10 millimeter box end. Now I need a yeah. 10 millimeter box. Now I need an 11 millimeter box end. Now I, now I need a 12 mil. And sure enough, then there's more things and clients give you stuff and you got bottles of wine and yeah, stuff just ends up accumulating. And, um, by the time I left the shop, I sat and looked before I started turning everything down. I was like, wow, there's a lot of crap in here. I want to try to have that slate clean because I'm a big believer in not only is it my preference, but I really believe that as bike fitters and as humans, I'll say, anytime you're trying to put your attention towards a complex problem, the more stimulus you have, the more your body has to ignore. It's just like proprioception, right? Like if you've got a a cleat or a shoe that's totally blown, you know, take your pick pedal cleat or shoe. Or sometimes I have clients who have all three and they're totally smashed. I mean, the, there's all kinds of play and the cleats barely hold on the pedal and everything's wobbling all over the place. There's not a lot of point in trying to fine tune a one degree wedge in any particular part of that client's setup, yep. whether it be a cleat wedge, a four foot wedge or a heel wedge, because right. the fact is you're just, you know, it's a drop in the bucket if everything's wobbling all over by a few degrees in all directions. And so we have that, that need, I think, to cleanse our space so that then we can do better work. We can focus. And when I'm distracted by my tool, when I have to look for a tool for two minutes or when I have to, um, 
you know, think carefully about how I'm going to solve a problem because they don't have the right tool to do it instead of just having that tool on command, then that's an interruption in my workflow and it takes right. away from the service I can provide the client, right? Right. So, or you have to move a box of something out of the way or you have to shift a bicycle and a set of wheels out of the way because yep. they've brought two bikes and three pairs of shoes and there's just stuff everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. 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 I kind of almost, I'm almost to the point where have you ever seen like a Kaizen warehouse where they have the little black and yellow striped tape where the forklift right. goes, right? right I'm almost right, to that right. point with my clients. Like, here's your black and yellow line, buddy. Yeah. You can sit here in this chair, you can put your backpack here. Your wheels can be <laughs> wherever they want. They just got to be in that box. <laughs> so try to put them against anything that's painted white. Right. Yeah. Clayton. So Clayton <laughs> built up this, this sky blue room with white doors and white trim. And somebody came in one time and said, wow, I can't tell if this is a bike fit place or a high-end daycare. I mean, it's like a really <laughs> nice room. And I'm like, yeah, you can put your bike over here. Just don't let your your wheel hit against the door. You know, Clayton's good about cleanliness and yeah. with the, the COVID stuff. I mean, between clients, we have to mop and wipe down any surface they've touched. After yep. bike fits, I have to wipe down and put everything away. So I've gone on, on to a you know 180 degree shift uh, since we moved across the street. I have more stuff to work with. I have more room. Uh, the flow has gone better, but I have to clean things, organize, put things away. Mm -hmm. So that the next morning when I come in, the place is ready to rip. So yep. it really is kind of like being in a band where you, you break down all your gear, you, you get the sticks all right in the right pockets and you've got everything stored in a very specific place. Cause tomorrow right. you have 30 minutes between clients and you need to do whatever. So uh, putting little marks on the floor. So now I've got a box, I've got a Jack, I've got the rocking trainer. Yep. I've got the rocking Grotech trainer. I've got a box for the rollers. I can tilt the rolls up a little bit. And mm. I've got little marks on the floor. So it took me, I don't know, two or three months of, okay, this lines up with this mirror and this, this makes it hard to get around yes. the bike. So, you know, yes. just get everything set up. But yeah, I can, I can set the bike up for a fit now. I can set the, reset the room from where it is now for exercise to ready to rock for a bike fit in about 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. Whereas in the, in the Velotron lab, you just, you just walked in and started because everything's hanging out on the walls yeah. and you just grab and go. And so, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little, a little bit about where I'm from and how I became a bike fitter. Well, yes, please. I, I started out in Baytown, Texas and uh, grew up playing the trumpet at four or five years old. I was five. My brother was four, started playing the trumpet. And by the time we were in junior high, we were playing songs where, whereas other kids were kind of learning the horn. And so we kind of had a leg up on the trumpet and somewhere in my Sophomore year, high school, I fell in love with the drums. I was working in a meat market and this gal was going through divorce and this guy had left some old drums at her house and she was mad at him and she sold them to me for super cheap and I could pay like five bucks a week for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm all stoked. I come dragging this drum kid home. My parents were, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> you know, the whole time I was riding bikes, uh, if you go find my Facebook page I and mean, there's a picture in 69 of me on my, my sister's bike. And if you look mm -hmm. closely, you'll see the fork is bent. And I got this scar on my chin. Oh. At four years old, I was popping wheelies on it. Uh -huh. And the axle came loose. Oh boy. And so the wheel stayed on the ground and I came down on the fork. And oh. of course you're supposed to be going to church, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got out of church. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> started out in Baytown, played the trumpet, did a lot of music. I was always riding the bicycle. Used to love to roller skate. Mm-hmm. I would mow yards for bicycle stuff or buying cheap motorcycles or go roller skating. Uh, started playing the drums. 
And within about two years, got pretty good on the drums. And I had this idea in my head that I was going to be a professional drummer. And my parents were, uh, so got out of high school, lasted a year and a half of junior college. And then uh, I got a gig with a a local cover band. So in 85 and 86, we toured, we played a lot in Houston. And, but we also toured up in Oklahoma and Louisiana and uh, North Texas. And what was the name of your band? Minx, M-I-N-X, which is, it's slang for a, for a young sassy woman. Yes. And, <clears throat> excuse me. It was a glam <laughs> band. So I had like hairspray and no way makeup. And oh yeah, I was, I look at oh, those man. pictures and cringe now, dude. Can we put one um, on our Instagram release? Uh, yeah. I'll find one. Fl- Actually, there's one that I don't mind from that era. If you take a look at it, there's a mic coming in. So I'm playing the drums and I'm looking over here to sing. I'm spinning a stick. So it's mid spin on the stick and I'm going over to sing and you can see this other symbol off to the left. Mm-hmm. is actually angled so i'm smashing this symbol while i'm spinning a stick while i'm about to sing and if you look at the look on the face it's it's almost like those race car drivers that when they're going through a spin out and you look at their face they got a real calm focused look they're not mm-hmm. it's actually a good shot of trying to multitask and and mm-hmm. flowing yep. while you are just beating the crap out of these drums i mean mm-hmm. the the guys it was back when all this poison and molly crew and rad and acdc and zeppelin and it's just like jerry just these guys were five and six years older than they, you just need to hit hard hit every time you hit the drums hit really, really hard. And uh, that's when the drums sound the best. If you have mm-hmm. decent technique and you whack a snare drum really, really hard, it sounds great. So mm-hmm. that became the norm and okay. uh, did that for two years. And Jamie Isaacs, who will come up later uh, in the end of 86, he says, well, I got good news and bad news. It's like with that. Well, last year you guys made 38 grand. Oh, sweet. He said, the problem is you spent 52 making 38. <laughs> 38 grand between three musicians and a road crew of five. Uh-huh. So eight people combined yep. <laughs> managed to generate 38 grand. So needless to say, a couple of years of that, okay, that's enough. Cut my hair, went back to school. I thought I was going to be some type of, uh, my father had retired from Exxon as a, an accountant. You know, he's one of those guys, he's got the first job he applied for and stayed there until he retired. Yep. And I started going back to school, taking some accounting, and I was actually kind of getting into it. I passed my first accounting exam, which was a huge surprise, <laughs> and I kind of enjoyed it. But the, the requirements for accounting is like, there is no art, you know, there is the ledger, and the ledger needs to be the way, so there's no wiggle room. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, learning the math stuff, that had been, always been hard for me in high school. Um, I always did well in English and music and anything that, that allowed, gave me some freeway to kind of experiment. Mm-hmm. I did well in that kind of stuff, but the math and the sciences were killer. So mm-hmm. anyway, I cut my hair, went back to school, started working at a Red Lobster. So wow. going, from, going from being a glam rock drummer to a short-haired guy learning how to memorize the Red Lobster menu and work there right. with my brother. Right. I just total, you know, anyway, fish out of water on that. Did that for two years. And then my buddy, Alan Cotton, uh, who I'd played with in a kind of a garage band in Baytown before I'd started touring with that other band. He talked me into moving to LA. So in 87, he started talking to me about, hey man, you need to come out and check out this musician Institute place. It's year round. You play your instrument four to six hours, five or six days a week, and it's a way to get really good 
on the drum kit. If you go over to the university and say, oh, I want to get a degree in percussion. Great. You'll be in the orchestra and you get to play the triangle and a trap drum set is not considered a part of the orchestra. So they're going to teach you the rudiments and all the you know official ways to play in an orchestra, not a trap drum set. Well, the mm-hmm. Musician Institute that Alan was going to is learning how to play with a click track, uh, getting to watch really, really good drummers come. There's a guy named Steve Gadd, who is probably, I think, the best drummer that's lived in our history as far as pop music goes. Played with Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever hear that song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover? Yeah. Listen to the intro on that. Okay. That's Steve Gadd. And, you know, dozens of really, really good drummers try to emulate that, but nobody really can except Steve Gadd. Uh-huh. I got to see him at this uh, school that Alan got me into. And uh, so I saw a lot of really good drummers while I was going to school there. And that wound up influencing my bike fitting significantly later mm-hmm. uh, with regard to feel and setting things up. Uh, there's a guy named Don Perry, who is one of the instructors. He played for uh, Jethro Tull. And if you listen to Jethro Tull's music, it's, it's very dynamic. And then it's also all over the place with time signatures and complex polyrhythms. And this guy would be up there playing this really intricate stuff in 13. He's explaining it and you're watching it go across the board. And it's just like, I mean, it's like John Tomac picking his way through a, a downhill and telling you exactly what's going on. He just made it look right. so easy. Right. And when he, you know, so when he would have office hours, I'd go and talk to him about it. You know, I'm having trouble learning a certain song or a certain technique with the kick drum. Or I'm trying to do a jazz thing. And you would think that this guy, who's such a, you know, a technical player and has this, this mountain of information on all this really technical stuff. He would really just like simplify everything and say, oh, so you're trying to learn Walk This Way by Aerosmith and you're having a problem with the kick drum. Hmm. Do you know the tempo of that song? Oh, yeah, it's about 100 beats a minute. Good. Now set your drum kit up left-handed and practice it at 30 to 40 beats a minute. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, wait a minute. Really? Yeah, just put your hi-hat over here, put the snare over here, put your left foot on the kick drum, put your right foot and lead with your left hand and play the snare with your right hand. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He goes, look, try it. And then when you've tried it and you stumble around and you have questions, come back and I'll tell you why. Hmm. So I did try it. And he says, look, do it for 10 minutes. Take a break. Walk around at the, at the time. Walk around the block, smoke a cigarette. <laughs> come, back <up. laughs> right. come back up. And then try to play it right-handed. He goes, and don't try to practice it at 100. Practice it at 90. So record yourself at 90. See where you're stumbling. Hmm. And then practice it at 30 to 40, left-handed for 10 minutes. And then come back and record it again at 90. I was like, dude, that was so much better. Hmm. How does that work? He says, well, here's the bottom line. If you learn to do on your right side of your body what you do with your left side of your body. Mm-hmm. And he was keeping it really, you know, I was just this hardcore rock and roll guy. He wasn't saying ambidexterity or right, left hemisphere doing similar things. He was yep. just saying, when you learn how to do similar things on both sides of the body, it puts the signal across more of the brain. Right. And it makes it, it, makes it easier to execute. And you don't have to think so much. So when I'm having a hard time playing things, yeah, I'll set my drum set up the other direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he says, remember the movie Rocky, where they taught him how to box right handed. So he's a natural lefty. But what do they do? They teach him how to box right. Yep. So late in the match, he can go back can to switch. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So and that, so that has stuck with me huge on uh, bike stuff. Huge. For sure. There are a lot of implications for that. I mean, one, the simple one that comes to mind for me is 
when I have people get ready for cyclocross season, you know, as a coach, I'll have them do left and right side dismounts. Yeah. And most people, of course, they can do their regular side, which is off to the left, right. And carry the bike on the right shoulder. That's normal for everyone. But of course, a smart promoter is going to throw in a couple uh, turns where it's advantageous for you to dismount on the other side, or occasionally sure. just everything happens in a cyclocross race. You get a, a bunch of people, you know, on top of each other in a pile and you get up and you're on the other side of your bike. What are you going to do? Run around your bike. You can right. do that, but you're giving up three or four seconds. So right. um, it's useful in competition, but it's also useful as a proprioceptive nervous system, brain dominance, hemispheric drill, like you're describing to help you establish that connection on both sides and learn an activity. Cause when you change sides like that, it becomes so mechanical, right? It becomes so like, wait, sure. what am I doing? How does this hand work? How's this? And yeah. Steve's yeah. talked to us about stuff like that. Like brushing your teeth with the other hand now close right. one eye and close your dominant eye now stand on your non-dominant foot right while you're brushing your teeth with that dominant eye closed and what happens you know how weird is it all how awkward is it all but you do these little nervous system drills and it can help wake things up turn things on it sounds yeah. like that's what your your drum guy was yeah. saying yeah and it also improves kinesthetic awareness and neuroplasticity so learning yes. to learn in the moment yes so you know, yeah. it's, uh, you learn how to operate your left foot more like your right and vice versa. So, mm -hmm. you know, most, most drummers, uh, it's, it's funny, the right hip drop thing, nine out of 10 drummers will play right-handed. You know, they got the, yep. the hi-hat over here and they kick with their right foot and they put their left foot on the hi-hat and the snare drum is with the left hand. So just whack, whack, whack yep. Yep. with the left hand, which is very stable and slow. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then all the complex stuff happens, happens with, with the right, right hand. Yeah. Just like standing on your left foot and opening a door with your right foot. Yep. Pretty easy. I'll yep. stand on your right foot and open the door with the left foot. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and to that, to expand on that briefly, like, you know, we're talking about right hip drop and just to briefly explain for our listeners, make sure they know what we're talking about. Uh, I would say probably 85% of the riders who come through my door are, have noticeable hip drop. Um, everyone has it. It's just some people you can see it uh, a lot more, you know, depending on where you are on the scale, but 85%, it's, it's definitely there, even at low intensity. And of that 85%, probably 85 or 90% of those are righties, meaning Correct. basically track a marker on the, on the posterior aspect of the right hip. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the right SI joint or the right iliac crest, for example, right? Um, or just call it the right butt cheek. And basically <laughs> what's happening is that right iliac crest kind of follows the foot as it pedals. So as the foot goes from 12 o'clock or straight up to three o'clock where the crank is horizontal, that butt cheek or iliac crest will shift forward. And then as the foot drops down past three o'clock, four, five, six, the right iliac crest will drop down. So Correct. really it's, it's like hypermobility almost, you might say of that whole right side hip is kind of going in a circle along with the foot. And what right. does that do? That asymmetry causes some sort of consequence somewhere where the consequences could depend on the rider, right? It can show up as chronic IT band uh, tightness and pain in the left side. It can show up as chronic knee pain on either side. It can show up on saddle sores on either side. It can show up as lower back pain on either side, probably more commonly in the left side, I would say, because the left lumbar musculature is kind of trying to stabilize it all fulcrums to that side of the lower back, right? Uh, it can show up in chronic scapular discomfort where someone's kind of stabilizing the opposite shoulder. Cause when you have right hip drop, the head tends to go to the other side on each pedal stroke, which gives this sort of 
diagonal torque across the backside of the, of the spine. Right. right? So um, I talk about, you know, client, what's great about this. Now I have a post-fit document, Jerry, and, and I think the sixth section is titled, yes, you have public, congratulations. Yes, you have a pelvic, pelvic obliquity and here's what to do about it or a starting point. People are so surprised that they're not symmetrical on the bike yeah. and that they see, I show them a video, I film it with my iPad, show them, hey, here's what you're doing. Here's your hip drop. And they're like, wow, I must be the only person in the universe who's doing that. Oh, sorry to tell you, man. <laughs> well, how do I fix it? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Or maybe it's the wrong question. Maybe we don't want to fix it. We want to examine the dysfunction in the greater, greater context because there are many riders who come in with massive hip drop symptoms. I'll say they exhibit massive symptoms in that moment of hip drop, but they have no problem whatsoever. Then there are other, I'm sure you've seen this as well, Jerry, you can tell me if you agree. There are other clients who come in and they barely got perceptible hip drop and they're on the verge of quitting the sport because yeah, of I've got, one of those, I've got one of those uh, right now who's probably going to be listening to this with a fine tooth comb, good. extremely sensitive, yep. really strong cyclist, yep. really good function. I mean, I can explain something to him off the bike, you know, with a kettlebell, doing a squat with a credit card between your knees on spin mm -hmm. board, right? Yep. Yeah. squat all the way down and come all the way back up and don't let that spin board move. I mean, in two days, he's got it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very strong rider. And so, so I would say he kind of fits in that uh, category with you. You're more of a Cinderella princess yeah. of the P you kind of feel, you feel a lot of little things. Yeah. And yeah. so some people are clueless and they don't even notice that the right knee is coming in and the left knee is swinging wide. And, yep. but when you show it to them, uh, some people want the, some type of data, and, you know, it's like, I don't have the Velotron. I don't have goniometers. If, if you really want to see it, I'll hang a, I'll hang a ruler from mm -hmm. the kinetic rock and roll. I hang a ruler from the side. Yep. And so the side that's dropping the right side, mm -hmm. that, that trainer is going to bounce down and you can actually put a laser on the center line yep. and you can actually measure, okay, well, this is going down between 10 and 15 millimeters as your right leg's going down. You can video it. And then you come back later, you know, two and a half hours later, after you've done what you've done, and, uh, you know, mm. sometimes it's doing the same thing or sometimes it's only going eight to 10. Mm. And so, so those people that don't have a lot of kinesthetic awareness that don't realize they're dropping their hip, they tend to rely on, Hey, show me the numbers, show me where this stuff mm. is going wrong. And yeah. Okay. I'll do something to kind of show you with the video, but let's work on, work on that kinesthetic awareness. So let's do some stuff with your eyes closed. Let's have you stand on a, a couple of, you know, one foot on each scale. Mm. and do some squats you know i don't have a pressure plate i don't have a lot of the fancy whiz bang gear but i can put somebody on scales or bosu balls or some you know a couple of spin mm. boards and uh have them do 10 squats spin board what? it's a poor man's dude right poor yeah. man's version of a and of a... you put it you put an eye mask on them yeah. and say okay you now show me 10 10 squats with the spin board yeah. and there goes that left leg externally rotating and the right leg internally rotating it's like whoa check yeah. it out you're showing the hip drop in your squat doing this it's so common and, right, to see that and, yeah. but every once in a while you'll you'll see the exact opposite, opposite. off the bike and what you see off the bike on the bike so yep yep it's uh it's tricky um mm. uh, there there are no you know i've heard what is the saying anything over 90 minutes is a waste of time on a bike fit and I mean, sometimes it's like, I'm at 90 minutes and the client's are like, when are we going to start the fitting stuff? It's like, dude, we have to figure out what makes you tick first. 
We started it the doing... second you walked in the door, pal. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, what, how did I get into this bike fitting thing? I mean, it's, it's almost like a curse Colby. <laughs> it's like the more you learn about this stuff, it's like you're starting to like forget things that you know you were doing four or five or six years ago that mm-hmm. you used to always do, and you realized, oh man, I had three people I did that with, and it didn't heal, so I blew it off. Well, there's still some people you can help that with, but you're starting to learn newer and newer things, and you're finding ways to expedite the fitting process, but you're still going to see curveballs. Mm-hmm. So, how did I become bike fit? How did I make that leap from from drums to bike fitting? Well, I started working at a bike shop in L.A. Um, I was out there to go to music school and my buddy, Jamie Isaacs, who now manages seven, six or seven of the bike lawn stores in Houston. He, he called me down there to help him out. He's like, man, we just had to fire a guy. I'm here. The mechanic doesn't speak English. You have to watch the register. Uh, just get down here. I managed your bit. <laughs> he managed the band that I was in on the context that eventually he would take 20% of everything we made. So for two years, he worked his tail off. And the only thing he got in return was free drum lessons for his little brother. Every, you know, once a week when we were in town, I would do go over and give him his little brother drum lesson. Anyway, Jamie calls me on a Saturday, dude, you owe me get to the bike shop. Yeah. Just wear a short and t-shirt. I was still in bed, 10 30. Uh, I get down there and look, stand behind the register. The phone's going to ring. Make sure it goes to the second ring, pick it up, say, thank you for calling safety cycle. How may I help you? Yeah. And they're going to say something and you're going to have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> just let them talk. Yeah. And when they, when they, you know, there's a gap, say just a moment, let me get somebody from that department. I need right. to put you on hold, put them on hold. So Jamie's wearing five hats running around doing stuff at the back and service and people on the floor and talking to clients coming in. And I'm over here guarding the register in the phone. And uh, this little guy comes through the door and he looks up at me and says, who are you? I was like, I'm Jerry do you work here? It's like, well, kind of, where did you start? <laughs> About 10 minutes ago, I was talking to the owner of the store <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Jamie, Jamie had only been working there a few months. So this Texan comes in, yeah. has to fire this guy. He's got his buddy coming in. This long haired, you know, I got like a Van Halen t-shirt or something. <laughs> you know, my specialized 23 inch specialized hard rock, you know, I had this mm-hmm. killer mountain bike. Uh, and so that's how I started into, you know, my pay for the day was at the end of the day is about six o'clock. And they're like, it's like, are we paying this guy? He goes, man, I worked for this guy for two years for free. He can give me a day. Yeah. Like, well, we got to give him something. It's like, well, how about dinner? So my pay for the first day in the bike industry was about $8 a Burger King. That's and that's how I got some people make in their first, <laughs> first day of work in the bike industry. Probably many actually. So, so yeah, I, and I thought it was kind of fun just watching what Jamie was doing, running around and, and seeing people asking about bikes and, and, you know, I just thought it was a cool environment, very old bike shop. And so I worked there for a while. Jamie wound up moving back to Texas. So I just worked there on Saturdays during the week. I worked as a maintenance person at a movie theater and an office building. And I made pretty good money, but I was working these night shifts, like two nights a week. I think I worked midnight to eight mm-hmm. and then three nights a week i would go and work like eight to ten cleaning these restrooms so i was like cobbling this money together to try to survive out in la and you know, just you know barely barely making my 500 dollars a month rent uh but yeah i was going to drumming school uh i got really good in about six months playing your drums five or six hours a day in six months you get good 
And then you start running into problems that cyclists run into. It's like, oh, my hands are starting to crack. Uh-huh. I'm starting to get some weird stuff in my elbow. Uh, you know, sitting too low on the on the drum throne. Yeah, you know, my right butt cheek starts to go to sleep after a while. Right. So I would go back to these instructors, you know, and they'd say, "What's going on?" And one guy looked at my hands and he saw how I cracked up. He goes, "Are you putting your hands in a lot of water?" I'm like, "Yeah, I work at a, as a maintenance person." He goes, "No, uh-huh. no, no. You got to put on gloves, get some salve, get some baby diaper rash stuff to put on your hands. Don't be putting your hands in water anymore." Right. So Casey Shirell played with Jean Luc Ponty, really good fusion player. Uh, Don Perry, uh, Fred Dinkins, who was my private lesson instructor, they're all giving me these tips, you know, on basically how to stay alive in LA and not just shred my body by playing too much. And Don said something really important. He said, if you're playing for X amount of time, say you're going to practice four hours, don't do anything for more than 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And every two to three minutes, even if you just stand up for two seconds, stand up between songs, stand up between exercises, give your butt a break, you know, twist a little bit. Yeah. He says, do something a little different. So he says, you want that stuff to have blood flow in it so you can reduce it from going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, just real basic stuff. Yeah. Uh, so these guys are giving me all these tips on getting good on the drums. I'm getting better on the drums. Mm-hmm. Then uh, within about the end of the year, uh, Jamie moved back to Texas. He wound up getting married. Eloped, got married. I was left at the bike shop and they wanted to demote me. I was supposed to become some kind of a, assistant manager. And so that's when I went over to iMartin Imports. Well, okay. no, I worked as a bike messenger for three months. So that bike shop demoted me. I went from making like, I don't know, $7 an hour to five seventy-five or something. I worked as a bike messenger in LA for three months. Wow. The most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life. Yep. And the first Did two weeks. Like the fixie and the jeans and everything or. Oh, no, 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 no. I had, by this time, this is like a year and a half later, I'd moved up from my hard rock to my rock opera comp. Nice. Jamie said that 23 inch hard rock might, might be a little big. So I got a 22.5 rock opera comp. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back on it, you know, it's like, anyway, I, I started doing a uh, bike messengering on that mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And I was in LA on the, going to the West side. So I'd ride from Hollywood over to the West side of LA. And now here I am, I'm playing in bands at night, but I'm spending six to seven hours a day doing bike messengering, which is not great training. You're wearing a messenger bag, you're in and out of office buildings, locking up your bike. Yep. You're usually in a hurry and you're in LA traffic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept going by this one shop, iMartin Imports, which is right there by the Beverly Center in the area that I was carrying in. And I'd break a spoke, uh, a hub would come loose, uh, something would start creaking, I'd get a flat tire. And, and so I kept going into iMartin and I'd run back to the service guy and say, hey, I got a broken spoke. I'm working. Is there any way you can help me out? Mm-hmm. I'll give you 10 bucks. If you can do this, I'll give you 10 bucks on top of the fee. If you can do this right now, I'm supposed to be working. Yeah. So after about the second or third time of getting like this immediate service, the manager comes over and goes, man, long haired gal on this bright yellow bike. I see you coming in here all the time. And somehow you made it to stand around in like 15, 20 minutes, your bike's ready to go. And other <laughs> people are waiting a week. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, schmoozing with the guys and, giving them little tips and stuff and said, well, yeah, I worked over, you know, at, at the safety side. Oh, you know, Art. And yeah, I know Art. Yo, you know, big old Jamie. Yeah. He was my roommate. He goes, what do you do? A bike messenger in LA? What's wrong with you? Yeah. I play in bands. And, <laughs> you know, he goes, Oh dude, you're, you're riding a bike in LA traffic all day long. That's, uh, and so you've already worked at a bike shop. 
what would you think about trying out here to see what we have going on? Why don't you come in uh, Saturday morning? Let's give you a tryout and see. Maybe we can get you off the road. So cool. it was really cool. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I go in for my first day of work. And of course, I've got like a Van Halen or ACDC shirt on. They give me one of the company shirts. Oh, you got to tuck it in. You got to have your little fanny pack with your measuring things. First day of work, this first Saturday at work at Amart Newports, 10 after 10, somebody steals a set of Osos bibs and oh. walks out the back door. Oh. He clipped the sensor off of it. And the, all the service guys, they're walking around in circles. And I just walked by and I saw them all talking to each other very quietly. And I was like, hey, Milton, what's going on? He goes, the guy that went out the back, he's in the dress shoes. Yeah. He take the Osos bibs. He cut it off. He cut the sensor with wire clippers. Uh-huh. So I ran out the back door and he was walking down the alleyway and I yelled, hey, uh-huh. he started running. So I chased him down. Yeah. 23. Yeah. Real brave Texan. Anyway, I dragged him back into the store. Nice. And <laughs> I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it at this age. But anyway, I brought him back into the store. I took him to the manager and the owner and they're like, He's like, who's this guy? Oh, it's the new guy, Jerry. He just started today. It's like, it's not even 1030. You're chasing people down the alleyway. <laughs> nice. Full on Texas accent, long hair, you know. And <laughs> they made him pay for him. Uh-huh. Said, Look, you're going to go up here. We're going to rent your credit card for the full amount of this thing. And you're never to come in the shop again. So they didn't press charges. Right. They just made him pay for the Sold bibs. A pair of bibs. And at the end of the day, they said, well, okay, we'd like to we'd like to point out Jerry. Where's Jerry? The, yeah, the new guy, the tall guy with the long hair. You come over here. This guy chased down a customer that had stolen something. Now, we, we appreciate his vigor in doing this, but that's not a real smart thing to do, especially if the guy's got a weapon or something. Yeah. But for your efforts, and they pull me down a pair of mountain bike tires. And how, how should I say this? It wasn't the most expensive pair. The, the right. tires that I had on my bike were actually nicer. Than <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks for the tires, dude. Okay, that'll be that'll be my first pair of tires to go on the tire stack. Right. But, uh, yeah. So I started at Imart Imports, and uh, met Brad Carnes and Rod Gilchrist. So at first, I was just like, you know, I had been a service guy over at the other place and answering the phones and ringing things up. Well, now it's like, okay, you're going to be on the floor. Mountain bikes go over here. The road bikes go over here. They have these new things called hybrids that were coming out. <laughs> and just follow these guys around. And you're going to follow Eric and you're going to follow uh, Rod and Lars. And uh, anyway, Fat so, Chance okay, Bicycles were huge what, at that time. What year was this? Uh, 90. And how much did a pair of Azos bibs cost then? Oh, I think they were like 110 bucks or something. Which back then was? Yeah. I mean, what are they now? Five, six hundred, depending with, on the model. Yeah, with a with a real chamois. Yeah, yeah. with an actual leather chamois. Yeah. I would say max one twenty. I mean, a normal I mean, pair get, of shorts were probably thirty five bucks back then, or something. Right. right? Is that right? right? Bellwether, so. Bellwether, Pearl Azumi was kind of just coming out. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I just wanted uh, you know, equate how much that one hundred ten dollars you got back in mountain bike tires. So, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I think they were like yeah, ten buck twos. Remember those things, Toyota ten buck twos. Yep. Okay. The, the okay. Anyway, so, anyway, so <laughs> I start working there and uh, I'm following these guys around for the first day. And they're like, look, just follow these guys and listen to how they explain the bikes. So these little Diamondbacks and Trek and Specialized. Those are the big, oh, and Univega, yeah. which actually had some kind of nice bikes. Centurion before they were bought by Diamondback. And then they had some premium brands. They had Fuso, uh, Chinelli, Patekia. Vitas? So Vitas, yeah. That was my yeah. first one. My, that was my Vetus first one. I was like, 
Yeah. Holy cow. Lightest tin can ever made. They put me on a 63 center to center Somac. <laughs> 60. <laughs> the 60, the 60 centimeter top tube with the 90 stem, you know, I'm all like now stretched how, out on the 90. Just so people know, how tall are you? About six, two and a half. And, and you know. <laughs> oh man. So how big was the head tube on that bike? It must've been like 22 centimeters or 25 centimeters or something. Right closer to, I would say 25 yeah. with a 60, a really long head tube. Yeah. Uh, you could put two fists on the head tube and still have gap. Yeah. On either side, it's a big old head tube, long top tube. Even with a 90 mil stem on it, it was long and wiggly and mm. had Saxuray parts on it. It was kind yeah. of a mix mash of things. And that, that was my first road bike. But um, yeah, they said Somac, uh, Vitus, Vitus, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, but the killer bike in the store, but they had Richie's and they had uh, Mountain Goat. But the killer bike was a fat chance. And there was yeah. a bunch of mountain bike riders there. And Rod Gilchrist, who, Rod, I hope you're listening to this at some point. Thank you for all of your wisdom back then. I know I seemed like a bit of a cretin, but uh, <laughs> Rod, Rod is like the Scottish version of Hog. You know, it's just okay. very cut and dry. This is the way you do it. And, you know, uh, it's important. Fit is important. Technique is important. And uh, he, had a, he was the first person I knew that had a Merlin mountain bike. Mm -hmm. So all of us were getting, I was on my specialized and then all these other guys, there was like six or seven of them riding fats and Rod had a Merlin. It's like, Whoa, this is the bike fit guy, titanium and you break, you know, yeah, that was yeah. the, you know, he had an 88 model bike with you break on it. Um, so then I upgraded from my specialized, started mountain biking on that big old yellow specialized and realized, Oh my gosh, Rod's like, you know, lower that seat. You got to lower the handlebar. That head tube's so long. You, you need to get low on the bike, rigid front end. And we're riding, we're riding single track, really rocky baby head stuff out in the San Gabriel's no suspension. And Rod was the one that told me, you have to learn how to flow. You have to learn how to relax your elbows, mm -hmm. let the bike dance over the bumps, just enough pressure with your fingers to hang on to the bar. But if you hit something suddenly, you want to be able to activate your hands so you don't go over the front end. So mm -hmm. keep your eyes moving, you know, two meters in front of the, five or six feet in front of the bike. And, you know, the bike is going to go where you look. So, you know, if you don't hit the rock, don't focus on what you don't want. Focus on where you want to go. Right. And there was this one, one thing I was riding just with Rod one day. And he made this nice swoopy curve. He just drifted around this corner. And I tried to do the same thing. And I just watched the front wheel and went down. He went around the switchback and he came back. And I'm ahead of him. I'm, I've now gone down the switchback and I'm yep. ahead of him on the trail. Yep. He stops and goes, where did you come from? <laughs> it's like, I flew off the ledge. He's like, you got to be careful. There's no phones out here. There's no medical. He says, you're going to die out of, you can, you can really get in trouble out here. No shortcuts, Stay man. on the trail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, fat chance. I, I finally got a fat and then I, you know, that was a, that was a 21 inch bike, still a little big, but it buried the Richie stem on it and seven speed XT top mounts. And, and still, this was an unsuspended bike. So there was a bunch of us riding fat chances. And then I learned how to ride. And within say six months of learning how to ride, I started doing a little bit of racing. And I was just a middle of the pack sport class guy that uh, Brad and I used to joke, you know, it's a musician finish. As long as we finish the ride or finish the race, and we don't wind up in the hospital. Great. Let's go drink some beer. But um, yeah, I had a lot of fun there. And uh, I wound up moving to two other shops from I Martin and uh, ended up at a place called 
safety cycle, uh, excuse me, pump cycle. But I learned how to do fitting with rod. And I thought the fit kit was like this scientific, wow, check it out. You know, you right. get the rad things and the, you got the different color charts for the different sizes of bikes. Are you touring? Are you more recreational? Do you want to be more of a racer? And you had a plumb line. And so by putting a bike on a trainer and measuring things and, oh, wow, this is in centimeters. This is great. You know, real accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and you want to level, everybody rode a level turbo because yeah. level's the way you go. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, Rod was just like, just level this thing out, put this little dial on here, get it to zero. And uh, you put it to the number that's in the book. And then once they're pedaling, just ask them, do they like it? Do they feel like it needs to go up or it goes down? And if they, if you add, if they feel like it needs to go up and you go up, but then you see their shoulders hunching up, Yeah, you, know, you, you need to play with it a little bit. I mean, granted, this is a 30 minute bike fit for 40 bucks. Yeah, yeah. So and this is so years you would take ago. all the numbers. Yeah, this is a you took their numbers way ahead of time mm-hmm. and you looked at the chart. So you had some little notes, some very basic notes. That the ball of the foot went over the pedal spindle. Period. Right. right. How do you find the ball? Yeah. How do you find the ball of the foot? Well, you look at the shoe and you look at the apex of the curve of the shoe and where that apex is, that's where the ball of the foot's gonna land. Interesting. <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Rod. Yeah, you did teach me that, but yeah. He says, you know, when in doubt, just set it where the curve of the shoe is. And that's where most people's ball of feet are going to be. Mm. And then just watch how they pedal. Mm. And if you raise the seat a little bit and they start changing how they're pedaling and they, they look loose, just go back down mm. and, and go up and down a few times. I mean, I was letting them pedal for like 30 seconds right. and asking, is A better or is B better? But, you know, so those first few sessions was, you know, some people are like, oh, I want to go higher or I want to go lower or whatever. This is hurting my taint. And uh, Rod, what do I do? He goes, try lowering the seat a little bit and then have him ride real light on the bars. And if he starts to straighten his arms out, he's putting weight on the bars and you need to bring the nose up. So just go a little bit. He wasn't telling me degrees. He was just saying, just go a little bit. Hmm. So, so, and he wound up leaving and, and I wound up leaving and going to other shops and I learned more and more and yeah. started working with mountain bikes and suspension and sag and, and, uh, so everybody ran- to that point though, that brings up a really basic methodology question about fitting. You know, it reminds me of the conversation I've had with Chris Balzer, where he talks about how he had that guru fit bike and it was a real, you know, for those who aren't familiar, it's a real whiz bang system. That's got a lot of hydraulics. And the cool thing about it is you can make changes while the rider's pedaling. So you put them on the, on the guru and they can, you can, it's all computer modulated hydraulics. So you can raise the saddle height as they're pedaling. You can move the saddle forward as they're pedaling. You can move the bars up and down or in and out as they're pedaling. So it's, it's kind of neat. And the way that system is set up, you make all these subtle changes and you have discussion with the client. And at the end of the fit, then you push a button and it reverts back to their original position. And then it's a big exclamation point in the fit. Like, wow, look how much change we made and look how much better you feel. But what Chris's point was, and Chris is a fitter in Minnesota, who's a friend of Jerry and, and mine as well, in case people don't know. Chris's takeaway from that whole system was if you let the athlete drive their own bike fit, they have no idea what's best for them. And he said almost without fail, and I'm paraphrasing Chris here, that when that methodology was used during fitting, he would then send people out to do their thing. And two or three weeks later, they come back and inevitably they had, oh man, now my butt hurts. Now my hamstrings are on fire. Now my back hurts. Nothing feels right. right. And the simple takeaway is 
there's a reason why we have jobs. We have jobs to interpret what the athlete gives us as feedback, but also to know what is best for the athlete and to coach them in that respect, or at least right. at, at a minimum, I would say, put them in the, in an optimal position or a better position, right? We're trying to optimize, but I would argue you've got to, you have a responsibility as a fitter to educate. And I don't think a lot of fitters I'll dare say, understand this. I don't pretend to know what goes on in every other fitters mind, but this is just for me seeing how other people work and the outcomes of their fits. Like if I go and change, like, okay, you went to see Steve when you trained with him and he lowered your saddle. You said what? 25 mils or something. No, no, like, he lowered it. He lowered it 20 mil, but moved it forward 15 and okay. then you left five millimeter shim. So over 30 mil reduction in my Total left. Reduction. So, Okay. So the point being is if Steve just made those changes as a, as if you were a normal client, you weren't training with him as a fitter and he just sent you out the door with no explanation and right. no, first of all, no prep work. Like, Hey man, this is really going to feel different. Here's why. Here's how proprioception works. Here's how motor engrams work. Here's how you are habituated to your old position. This takes right. this many revolutions and this many hours to change. If he didn't tell you all that, and if he additionally didn't give you some idea on why he was doing it, you would have made it about eight minutes into your first ride and gone, this sucks. I'm changing it. Or maybe you would have gone two weeks and still said this sucks because a change that big can take weeks, yeah. like weeks and weeks to get used to. So the point I'm getting at is methodologically, I think you would agree with me. And I'd love to hear your comment on this. Like if we let an athlete drive too much of the fitting process, we're bound for failure. Now it does. I'm not saying you never ask for feedback from someone that can be valuable, but if you let them drive the ship the whole way, like, how does that feel? Do we go up or down? They don't, uh -huh. That's yeah. why we are bike fitters because athletes are terrible at knowing what their own butts are doing. Right. Or exactly. I refer to this exactly. as hashtag. I film butts for a living. Cause no one knows what's happening. You can't feel hip drop. Usually you can right. see you have symptoms like, Oh, I got a saddle sore on the left side always, or, man, my left knee hurts like crazy. It always hurts when I ride long. Well, oh, that's because you're dropping the right hip and your left IT band is so tight. It's like a piano wire and it's pull. You're starting to have patellar tracking issues because you're, yeah. you're so whacked, right? So what do you think about that yeah, whole equation? It, of so that the, the explanation of, of why you're doing what you're doing, that can kind of calm their nerves a little bit. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to explain why, you know, what you're saying and why you're doing what you're doing and how this is going to help them, and that expect this to feel not great out of the game. My, when I went to see Hogg in uh, 2009, I hated my position. I was depressed. I'd gone to Australia. Yeah. Paolo had, come on, let's go see this guy. And he had one, he had his fit on a Tuesday and was just in heaven. And I was all excited. And I had my fit the next day. And after all these changes and all this wedging and a shim, you know, nobody had looked at me in 20 years. I'd right. taken my old fit kit numbers from 1991 and figured that because I'm now a trainer and I'm more functional, I'd raise my seat like another five mil. So according to the fit kit, I should have an 80.5 seat height. Mm -hmm. I had an 81 centimeter seat height. So I've been riding for 20 years with a blown PCL, all this drumming stuff. So I had this right rotation thing from playing the drums, yep. which yep. just exacerbates the hip drop. And uh, nobody had looked at me in years. And when mm -hmm. Hog saw me, he's like, Jerry, you're not going to like this probably, but we're going to get you as stable as possible. And luckily, Paolo was standing next to Steve watching this whole thing go on. And, you know, when the dust settled six hours later and I was dejected and he's like, come on, let's go get some dinner. Dude, you look much better on your bike. It's yeah. like I, it feels like a toy. I cannot, I can't get over the top. I don't have any leverage. All the stuff in my shoes, 
make my foot sit and sideways because that's where you tested strong neurologically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hog piped in several times. He goes, Jerry, how long since somebody's really looked at you on a bike? Yeah. It's like, oh, like, not since, uh, I don't know, 91. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd been looking at a lot of people. I hadn't been looking at myself. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. somebody said something recently about people kind of puffing things up. Like guys tend to, you know, if they're 5'7", they sit in 5'8". If you're running your seat height at a certain level, you're going to run it two millimeter higher because you read something on the internet. If the tire says the max tire pressure is 120, well, run it 125. You know, it's just a little thinner. <laughs> Remember people running 700 by 18, 700 by 20 tires? I was that guy. I, I oh, rode so dude. many criteriums in the NRC circuit. <laughs> 19 mil tires pumped to literally like 130. Oh, Somehow, 19. most of the time I stayed upright. It was not damn. That was normal and so at the time, then. at the time, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to pump these tires up, and I've got a rationale for doing it, and, and it's the same thing with the seat height and the, yeah. and the cleat position and just whatever the handlebars down, and uh, so Steve said, look, you're not local. He goes, if you were local, we would go in steps, yeah. and I would lower it a little bit, and you ride a couple of weeks, and we go a little bit because. You're out of the country. We're ripping the Band-Aid off. We're going to do every single thing today. You just got to trust me. And came mm-hmm. back, and the first week I hated it. I sent him three, two or three emails that first week back. And after the third one, he goes, Jerry, you agreed to a month of easy spending. Now, <laughs> stand by what you said. Stop emailing me. Yep. And if it's not working in a month, I'll refund everything, give you all your numbers back, and send you the best case of beer you've ever had. Until then... Don't move anything a millimeter. Yep. Well, a month and a few days later is when we rode from Austin to the coast. Pala was coming up with the longer than hell ride from Austin to the coast, which is over twice the distance of hotter than hell. Okay. Pala had done, he had done hotter than hell several times. He goes, ah, it's a century and it's hot, but it's a tailwind and it's 13,000 people and it ain't hard. Mm-hmm. He says, we're going twice the distance into the wind through the hills on the same day, longer than hell, totally supported. And so he had a, he had this, almost like a food truck, but you could, it was an RV. You could get in and lay down and air conditioning. And you want some junk food? uh, You want some water? You want some sushi? You want some oatmeal? You want a candy bar? You want a beer? I mean, it was Mm -hmm. fully stocked with anything you want. You got to go do this ride. Uh, You got to at least start it with us, even if you get in the RV. So I said, okay, I'll commit to 30 or 40 miles. Well, at 40 miles, you know, I still felt great. At 60 miles, I still felt great. Yep. At 80, 80 miles, it was the first time I'd gotten over 70 miles and I didn't have left knee pain. And then 100 miles, I didn't have century neck. Mm. And so it was at about 110 miles and I realized, oh, wow, okay, it's been a little, man, mm-hmm. I think this guy, this guy Hog was right. And then I got to 160 miles and that was the longest I'd ever been on a bike. And I started having some nutritional problems and sunscreen. And I mean, it was yeah. hot, dude. It was a hot ride. And uh, so long story short, I made the ride. And I was falling apart nutritionally by the end, but the position worked. And it did take a minute. It took a month and a few days of riding in the small ring, super easy. And I had to, mm-hmm. a few days later, eat crow with hog. Yeah, man, it finally worked and the, the knee wasn't hurting. So yeah. it takes time. So everybody's a different deal. Yeah. And so who's influenced me, my thoughts and my philosophies? Uh, well, the drum guys. You know, well, Casey I wanted Shrell. to ask you about that. What Do you think there's a real connection between the rhythmic attraction sort of there's a certain, I think personality or maybe a certain type of human who is gravity. I mean, okay. Rock band, like you got the lead singer, you got backup, you got the, 
you got the dancers and the backup singers, right? And then you have second guitar, what? I don't know. I'm talking out my ass here. I don't know. Rhythm rhythm guitar. Thank you. And then you have the drummer and the drummer has a, it's a, there are some people who could drum and there are many people who never could. Mm -hmm. And, and there's something about that rhythmic nature of drumming, that repetitive, like the whole point of, of being a good drummer is, I mean, yeah, when you get to the, the high end, you have to do many complex tasks with perfect timing, but the essence of it is that, that perfect metronomic rhythm, right? And yeah, you're just, you're cycling? finding a, you're, you're laying down a groove. Yeah. You, know, you, you are the tempo of what's going to happen. Of, of and so everything. you lock in with the bass and mm-hmm. the drummer lays down the, the rhythm or the feel of the song. And then the guitar player's got the melodic melody part with well, the bass guitar kind of ties the drummer in with the guitar player yeah and then the rhythm guitar player plays off the bass player and the drummer and then the singer is you know he's the guy that shows up latest to rehearsal he's got his microphone he's ready to go and anyway you if all of that coalesces and comes together and you can groove and you can find people that that you can push and they can push and it's almost like a dance that you're doing when you lock in and, and you see people in the audience starting to do this or starting to tap their feet or they get down on the floor to dance well now you're doing your job Right. Now you're grooving. So learning how to groove is uh, for a drummer. That's the most important part. A lot of guys want to solo. They want to play double bass stuff really fast. And, you know, it's, it's like a new mountain biker that wants to jump everything, but <laughs> he can't carve, you know, he doesn't know how to apply his front brakes. Like, yeah, you know, the jumping stuff is great. Let's, let's figure out that front brake. Okay. So you're constantly getting back to the, to the basics of the groove of what's going on. So as a drummer, you, you know when it's a groove when you're not having to force it. It's almost like being on a pump track or or a single track, something that you've ridden a hundred times. It's like you're not thinking about what you, your brake levers you're doing, or is this hip going over ten millimeters this way, or am I doing something different with my shoulder to counter steer? It's like you're just flowing with the trail. Uh-huh. A little bit of brake, a little bit of bunny hop, a little bit of skid correction, and. Um, you're riding along, you don't see anything, but you hear something and you know exactly what just happened. I just dropped my water bottle mm. without even looking down. You already know you've dropped your water bottle. You heard it rolling on the trail. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that that goes on as a drummer. Mm-hmm. So learning how to be totally in the moment and groove with what you're doing, that's, that's when you make music. Mm. And as a, as a personal trainer or a fitter, you may have a plan for what somebody's going to do when they come through the door, but if they've had a weird weekend or they didn't get good sleep mm-hmm. or they've had some new medication and they're just feeling a little bit off, it's like, well, we, we had the plan we had the 10 exercises we were going to do with all the sets and the reps and the, all the, oh, but yeah, but you didn't sleep all night and you get the hiccups. Hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's groove. Let's figure out what, what's the best use of our time right now and let's let's focus on the thing that's going to help you the most yes and that's that's kind of my methodology as a personal trainer strong people okay you're strong dude let's let's work on some flexibility Mm -hmm. really you know somebody like you i'd be doing stuff with eyes closed stability you know forcing you to to handle some more high load stuff without letting your pelvis move around or without your feet collapsing Uh, so train your train your weakness and raise your strength kind of thing Mm -hmm. so that's how I work as a, as a bike fit, as a personal trainer. Okay. When it comes to bike fitting, when you look at some burly guy that's got, you know, externally rotated elbows and the knees are out and they're just manhandling handling the front end. It's like, okay, we're going to do a little bit of position work and then we're going to do some technique work. We're going to try to bridge the gap between these things. And when you show people tension in the jaw, you know, elbows that are up shoulders that are coming up under load and you say, Hey man, let this drift down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Suddenly as this drifts down and they start to relax, it's like, 
you know, relax all that stuff going on in your forehead and your face. And just, you know, a good drummer just kind of grooves. They just kind of have a dumb look on their face. Like they're not really paying attention. The befuddled football player look just kind of, uh, just kind of grooving. And uh, you've seen it in writers. You've seen people that they have a lot of contortion. It's called facial fixation where they're, um, it's a secondary, what's her name? Elfinson, Joanne Elfinson. It's a secondary compensation for usually a weak core that can't handle what it's trying to do. You're talking about so, the pain face. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Sticking your tongue out, yeah. gritting your teeth, yeah. fur on the brow. I mean, how yeah. many guys have you seen coming across the line of a sprint and their, their tongues are literally as far out of their mouth as they can go. They're right. trying to create tension in their neck because of what they're doing with their shoulders because they don't have the requisite stability through the pelvis. Yep. So if you can point a few of these little things out to people, record some of it, and say, hey, if we can get that to relax, if we can get this to track a little more straight mm -hmm. and get you smoother on the bike, not force the gear so much, but to like flow with the gear, freewheel, you know, it's like get enough momentum in the pedals to keep them going, but you're not stabbing at the pedals. And so trying to change technique, you know, yeah. somebody that's got a really heavy duty toe pointer, I just tell them, look, we're not going to change this in a day. And you're going to have your tendencies, but if you know where your tendencies are, then when you're riding by yourself and you're riding under low loads, you can practice some different types of techniques, just like drummers. Yes. If you're really good at heavy metal, you're probably not going to be really good at jazz. So mm -hmm. go practice some jazz, go practice some Latin, go practice a little bit of country. Oh yeah. You're a heavy metal guy. Yeah. Play, play a country beat. Dum, da -dum, da -dum. Oh gosh, this is so boring. Really? Mm -hmm. Can you do it? But, so learning how to do different things, it's kind of like, you know, learning on the, the mountain bike and the cyclocross bike makes your road bike handling skills better. Yep. And learning how to maintain a constant tempo on the road bike helps you with your traction on the mountain bike because then you learn, okay, I can only give it so much torque for that rear wheel is going to spin yeah. out. So kind of cross training things, but in a bike fit, yeah. I just point out their, I point out their, their strengths and their challenges. So here's your strengths. We don't need to work on that. The, ch right. the challenges I'm seeing here and today is all about position. So it's ergonomics. So we're going to see if we can move your cleats around, move your, uh, your pelvis position around through your post and your seat, move your front end around. It took me about three years to learn how, three to four years to learn how to say seat instead of saddle. So I use the term seat now. Hog was that? ragging on me. Because yeah, oh, hog. hog doesn't like saddle because he thinks it's no, like no, no, no. Bail going on horses. He, he, he railed me. Yeah, he railed on me yeah. in, front of, in front of a client that he uh -huh. didn't even know when I was training with him. I, I said saddle for the third or fourth time. He says, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Jerry, what's this part of a bicycle called? Uh, top tube. Now, what's this part called? Uh, it's a seat tube. And what's this thing that goes in there? It's a seat post. Now, what do you put on a seat post? Uh, a saddle. Yeah, <laughs> a true, he says, a true saddle point, like you would ride on your horse, has this curve and a curve and it's flat. And that's a saddle point. This doesn't have that. So hmm. you're going to use the term seat. And man, it was, it was rough uh, learning how to say seat. I, now that you bring that up, I remember that. He has a few, <laughs> a few strong quirks about, uh, the other one he doesn't like is Q factor. It's gotta be out of separation distance. Oh, Q factor gosh. is one that he's not fond of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, look, man, if you were on it, you would have just called it a saddle post before you got to that part and then it would have Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or just a post. Just a post. A post. It's a post, dude. It's a post. You can put anything um, on it. So, uh, yeah, so, it's, well, I, I was just going to say, I just had, when I, after getting fit by Steve and then three years later training with him, yeah. um, 
you know, I already had a pretty good amount of information with my FitKit, my Velotron, and, you know, I would, I would start with the FitKit numbers and then experiment. And it was all about improving the spin scan and the right-left pedal uh, balance on the Velotron. Mm -hmm. So before I trained with Steve, I had a FitKit here and then I, you know, we'd bumped our fit up to a bull, you know, a full $200 or something. But before retool and all that, we had cameras and lasers and you could see yourself from different directions. I mean, it was kind of grainy, but you could see distances and you could see tendencies. And it was all about the Velotron. The Velotron is just a big, heavy spin bike. And so you'd move the seat back and forth or up and down and uh, play with the cleats a little bit. And as long as we got the bike to get the same speed with maybe two watts less, or maybe you went from a from an 81 to an 83 spin scan, or maybe you went from 55, 45, to a 5347 or something. It's like, hey, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. And in two hours, you do everything you could. And oh, two hours is up. So fit must be over. It's yeah. as good as you get. Yeah. And uh, that yeah. as it up until 2003 to 2008, I was doing that. And then I found Hog in 2008. And for a year, I was just talking about him every three days. He'd put something new on Cycling News. And Pal was like, dude, quit saying this guy's name. You're driving me nuts. Let's go visit him. And that's how I wound up in 2009 to meet him. Okay. But yeah, the two big two biggest influences. Well, I should say three uh, on bike fit are uh, Hog, Rod Gilchrist, and Paolo. Yeah, you know. And Paolo, like, I don't think you told us who Paolo was. He was the former owner of the castle, which is the gym where you work, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and he was uh, he was coming in when it was Timberline Fitness Studio. So before it was Castle Hill Fitness, it was a it was another gym called Timberline Fitness Studio, and he was he was coming in for PT. And massage. Paolo had had four other businesses. He was retired, and uh, he was just coming in. And it, so you'd go by the massage area, and there's this uh, custom Serata with full, you know, C record with cerium wheels, and I mean, it was just like everything to the nines. It's like, man, look at this bike. Who is this? You know, mm -hmm. it's this guy that's here for massage. So I'd been seeing his bike floating around, but I'd never met him. And then Timberline faded and went out of business and he saw an experiment to open a gym. He was bored, perfectionist, hard worker, uh, very successful business person. And you take somebody like that and give them retirement and in two years they're climbing the walls. Mm -hmm. So he had gotten really good on a bike and decided to start a gym. So very strong rider. Uh, he's one of those riders that, you know, you can be out in the middle of the rain in the middle of nowhere and somebody, it's a manhole cover, some paint, and they drift into you. And we kind of knew what would happen. We didn't crash. I mean, it's just, he was my riding buddy. Okay. And uh, really, really good friend. And he just showed up with the power plate or just showed up with a fit kit or the Velotron. It's like, let's see if you're really helping these people. New toy. Yeah. New toy. And we're going to give you this room and we're going to have an extra air AC in there. And we're going to do threshold tests. So we had uh, Chan and Jim McRae were hanging around, helping mm -hmm. us out, learning how to do threshold tests. And, uh, you know, Paolo wanted, he said, I want this corner to be a place where we make cyclists. So we're going to do spin classes and it's not just dancing and doing upper body work, but it's like learning how to spin like you would pedal a fixed gear bike. So it's not a bunch of, you know, who we, that you wouldn't actually do on the road. You know? Right. So you do some efforts and intervals that you would do, you know, on a road bike and just show, show these these everyday folks, how to use a heart rate monitor. And so he paid for Sally Edwards to come here herself. Mm -hmm. And she gave a, that was my first thing into foray into zone heart rate training. Yeah. And, uh, she was impressed with the fact that we had bikes with power meters on them. And we had uh, 
we had, uh, we had our bike 101 class tied in with the university that uh, people could come in and pay for five sessions. First session was a fit. Mm-hmm. And the next four sessions were outdoor rides. And we had three mm-hmm. sizes of bikes with a fit kit, adjustable stem. Have you ever seen one of those things? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rideable, adjustable, four and a half pound yes. monstrosity. Yeah. Uh, Sally Edwards came through and, you know, that's when I learned about this. You know, it's not called anaerobic threshold anymore. Now we're just going to call it threshold. Right. And uh, so I was just sitting there, you know, bated breath the whole time listening to her. And she came into the Velotron room and was looking at our gear and, I was showing her some files and showing her some of the stuff that Chan and I had been doing. And she was impressed that, you know, we, we were actually threshold testing and looking at the heart rate numbers and trying to improve efficiency. And she actually offered me a job hmm. and I was a new dad. I was this new gym. Paolo just gave me all this new gear. It's like, yeah, yeah I don't really want to travel around the country and right. teach heart rate. But Paolo, get, Paolo was one of those guys that would just show up and say, Hey, um, get ready. I'm going to pay you for Wednesdays off and we're going to ride Wednesdays from eight to four and we're going to get used to being on the bikes all day. And then in about four months, we're going out to California. We're going to do a big ass bike ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm paying. I'm going to take you out there. I'll fly you out there. We're going to stay with so-and-so and and I'll pay for all the stuff. And, you know, I just need a training partner. He goes, and you're the closest thing. So you will now be off on Wednesdays for the next six weeks. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Doesn't sound like a bad game. And he kind of did. And he kind of did the same thing with hog. It's like, let's just go down there and see what happens. I'll pay. And uh, so he was, uh, you know, really good natured guy. But when he went dark, you know, he's bipolar. He wound up uh, taking his own life. Uh, and that was, that was what spawned me to contact you because you were just starting to go train with Hog. Mm-hmm. Or you just got back from training with him. I just lost Palo. Yep. And I was yep, the yep. drift. And I was like, man, this guy Hog's like a year older than Palo. And here's Palo gone. What happens if something happens to Hog? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I contacted Steve about training. Oh, by the way, there's this guy named Colby Pierce that's in town. You know, he's a new guy, but he's actually picking things up. I'm like, damn, I wanted to be the first U.S. guy. But, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So you got Paolo checked out, and uh, that's what uh, motivated me to go. What really motivated me to go see Hog is when the daughter came and gave me Paolo's Prince, the Prince of Darkness. It was a, I think it was the first carbon Pinarello Prince in, in the state. Okay. And uh, it had, that was when we went to, it wasn't C record. What was it called? Just super record, the new yeah. super record. So now yeah. it's all the carbon fiber stuff and, and uh, Karima wheels and data Allen era front end on it. And it's like this $11,000 thing, you know, back in 2008, 2007. Mm-hmm. And uh, his daughter said, Hey, uh, because I was riding midfoot in a seat really far forward and Pelly had these long, long arms and rode a real stretch position we could trade bicycles mm-hmm. our seat heights were so close we could trade bikes without even adjusting the push we were both riding 172 and a half crank speed blade pedals and the daughter said my dad what if anything happened to him he wanted you to have his bike mm-hmm. and i took that thing for one ride and then i had this epiphany it's like i gotta go see hog so this one okay. invited me to go see that dude okay. and uh that was a real adventure yes yeah. So basic methods or philosophies on fitting. Yeah. Uh, take a look at what they ta- they they tend to do. You know, make notes of those, and then I, after I've made my notes, I ask them about it, and I, I like to see if their perceptions match up with what my notes are, so that I'm not influencing them. So as mm-hmm. opposed to standing behind him and saying, "Oh, you're dropping your right hip," um, I'll say, "Do you feel like one hip is dropping, or one hip is less stable than the other?" Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of, let's, let's compare notes type of thing instead of me, you know, 
telling you what's happening. Be. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, then, and then make notes of their current position. Mm. And then, then there's the muscle response testing stuff. And, yeah. you know, you test their current foot correction. And if they don't test strong, it's like, okay, well, there's a good starting point. But uh, then I go, through, so once I've looked at them on the bike and see what their tendencies are, I, I adjust the jack. The, the jack will actually give the bike a six degree decline and up to about a 12 degree incline or level, mm -hmm. you know, anywhere you want. So I even have people, you know, driving the pace in the drops and just watch the back, the back end. Are they sliding forward? Are they have the tendency to push with their elbows? Yeah. So test them under load and look at, look for a hip drop, make some notes, ask them what they're, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Okay. And it's like, okay, let's try that again. Let's try a little bit of video. And so I'll take their phone. That way I don't have to record it somewhere else. Like, Here, here's your phone. We're going to take 90 seconds of video. And then we watch the video together. Say, so see how this goes up and this goes down mm. and this goes forward when this goes back and you're doing this weird thing. You're, you're doing this like left internal rotation on your shoulder to kind of reset yourself between every pedal stroke. And so mm -hmm. I just, I tell people to kind of throw their eyes out of focus a little bit, watch the shoulders. And do you notice that the right shoulder goes more to the left? But then the, when the left shoulder goes to the right, it doesn't go as far, but it's, it's more of a jerk mm. or vice versa. Mm. So you just, you know, kind of show them the tendencies that you're seeing. And then you go through the muscle response testing. Once you've done that, you look at them on the bike again. And uh, so you're looking for I mean, patterns and helping use those to illustrate riders. Right. So, so I like to start with the foot correction mm. to see if that makes a difference. And sometimes it makes a pretty good difference. That's, mm -hmm. We haven't shimmed anything yet. All we've done is, you know what, I'm going to move your cleats a little bit and we're going to do this stuff with muscle response testing. And I'm going to see if I can get you pedaling a little better with a strong muscle response test. Mm -hmm. We haven't even done an assessment yet. Right. So right. let's just see if, if tweaking some, tweaking the foot angle a little bit and tweaking your cleats makes a difference on the bike. And you show some videos like, well, okay, this cleat went back four millimeters and this cleat went back seven millimeters. And we put this stuff in this heel and we put this stuff in this forefoot or at this cleat. Mm. And it looks the same to me. Hmm, interesting. Made a bunch of changes and no change on the bike. Now mm. let's do a functional movement screen. So then once you've done the functional movement screen, I've modified it uh, quite a bit from what uh, Steve was teaching me down there. And uh, uh, so basic stuff, you know, four point drawing, squat with the stick over the head. I like to look at them. Uh, now I've got some plexiglass and, and a plumb line. I like to look at them. Uh, I don't have a grid, but taking some pictures with them from different directions to see if they can see the heads forward or one shoulder's higher than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, take a look at how they squat. Um, this Are one you using the inline lunge and the hurdle mm -hmm. step? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I still use the hurdle step. Yeah. Uh, Unterberger test. Yep. The uh, now that new kneeling thing that Steve's doing, where you, you start with the feet hip width apart, one foot forward on the knee, yeah. and you just slowly wiggle the left foot over in front of the right knee and have them hold it for thirty seconds, and okay. you do the same thing on the other side, and you'll find that there's usually one side that's uh, more wobbly. Yeah, more wobbly. Yeah. And so they they can feel that they can feel that oh if I try to lunge and you know you've got this dowel against their back yeah with my left foot forward piece of cake with the right foot forward whoa. So and, uh, when you do the Unterberger, uh, just mm -hmm. I'll, we'll put a link to an Unterberger test in the show notes so people can check it out if they want, but it's a blindfold test that shows hemispheric dominance of the brain. Do you, Colby, what, let's, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. Because 
I had, I had, no, no, no. I had a, (laughs) I had a triathlete come in that had been practicing the Oh, you can't practice before the fifth. That ruins the whole test. (laughs) No. So guys, look it up. Just don't practice. You can't practice it. That's cheating. (laughs) It feeds the whole purpose. Good point. Good point. Uh, All right. We're deleting that part, Jana. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, we've got, you know, I've got a fan and an air purifier and, so I can actually control this room a little better. It's much quieter than across the street. Yeah. And I do some stuff with earplugs and eye stuff. And yeah. so yeah, Unterberger test, squat, uh, inline lunge, the, the kneeling thing. And then uh, do you look at a lot of muscle tension relationships? Like are you doing Thomas test and stuff like that as well? Oh yeah. 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 And I usually, you know, anything I'm going to like take a picture of, I just tell them, just give me your phone. Yeah. Here, lay back on this. So sometimes this is Thomas test or modified and tell them to take a deep breath and relax. Take a picture of the knees and the feet. Yeah. Pull this leg up. See what happens to this leg. Pull the other leg up. Yeah. And uh, you can actually, you can actually video a, a Thomas test mm-hmm. and then just take a quick look at the feet and you see that that right foot's turned out more than the left. And uh, you say, yeah, so this, as you pull this leg up, this leg, this hip moves around a lot more. So you got one glute that's more flexible than the other. You got one hip that's tighter than the other. Yep. You got yep. one leg that appears to be rotating out a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't tell me exactly what I'm going to do with the cleats, but it shows me where the tendencies are. Right, right. Well, and, you know, somebody's got really, really tight internal hip rotators on one side. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to reflect that in the cleat position. You may or may Correct. not, right? Depends Correct. on, there's that balance. I mean, this goes back to fitting philosophy. Like, I won't name the company, but there's a really big bicycle company out there whose philosophy is fit the bike to the rider. And what is the fit the bike to accommodate the rider? And what is the problem with that? I mean, you tell me, Jerry, and how many years have you been fitting now over? Uh, Well, I mean, technically, I think I started in about 91, but I would say 91 to about 2001 was a lot of hit and miss and fit kit. Still though, really right? you got to start somewhere. So, yeah. all right, but so yeah, let's yeah, call yeah. it thirty years. But how many yeah. riders have you walked through the door? Have walked through your door, who are so functionally ideal that you could literally just set the bike up to them one hundred percent and let and I, call that perfect? Has that I happened have yet? yet? To see one. I've yet, yet to, to see, see a one. single one. Okay. Yet, I've yet to see a single one. So, point being is the other side of that spectrum. Instead of, instead of as a bike fitter, making your bike fit to a rider that is dysfunctional, has some asymmetries, has some suboptimal posture, has some Mm -hmm. compensation patterns, has some um, not ideal muscle tension relationships. Instead of setting a bike up to that client, wouldn't you think it's preferable to, for us to educate the client, help them see how to stand better, sit better on the bike, make better power on the bike, and then work towards setting the bike up towards that ideal rider? Correct, correct. So I, I like to do a hip flexor, uh, test and depending on the person, sometimes I'll have them lie on their back with their hips on a foam roller and pull one knee up or do a Thomas test. But for somebody like you, it'd be more like a yoga type thing where you get on, you know, one foot on the floor, one yeah. knee with the leg going up the wall. How high can you get your torso? And if they see they can go all the way up with their left knee against the wall and they can only go up to 45 degrees with the right knee against the wall, and you're like, mm-hmm. aha. So now we're seeing some asymmetry. And it's like, okay, it's not just me with the magic wand and this is how it has to be. I ask him, do you feel this more in the center of the leg, more towards the knee, more way up high in the hip? You feel anything coming out of your back? And then I can get some cues if it's more in the leg, if it's more through the psoas. And so that's when we 
that's when the time starts to go. It's like, okay, these, these glutes are weaker than these glutes. This, this hip, set of hip flexors is significantly tighter. These quads are significantly tighter. So how about this? We're going to stretch these quads, work the opposing hamstrings, work the other side of the hamstring. We're going to stretch this hip flexor, work mm -hmm. these glutes, work these other glutes in a different way. As you're walking, you tend to get this big internal rotation or external rotation of your right leg compared to your left leg. Well, mm -hmm. what's going on? You know, muscles through the sides of the Colby, I'm trying to keep this super simple. I hear um, you. Yeah. Muscles through the sides of the hip. So there's muscles that rotate the legs in and out. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's got like a piriformis issue on one time, one side, they're they're more than likely going to have an issue with that same glute, glute medius. Right. So if you do a little bit of a piriformis stretch with a uh, lacrosse ball on the power plate and then do a standing band exercise to work on that same glute medius to like internally rotate the foot and the knee from the leg, mm -hmm. sometimes you can just say, hey, let's do a little stretch this, activate this, stretch this, activate that, hop back on the bike. And I would say 70% of the time they look over and they're like, dude, this is so much easier. Mm. So now what we've done is we didn't twist a cleat. We didn't shim anything. We didn't, we weren't bringing the bike to the rider. It's like, Hey, let's change how you function a little bit. Yeah. And if yeah. you can, if you can get something to switch on a granted, it's probably going to poop out on you in 20 minutes, but if they can see that flicker of improvement with mm. some, Oh, wow. Okay. If I just learn how to, you know, most people can rotate to the left really well. So, you know, if I can do some right rotations, uh, loosen up those right inner thigh muscles, activate that right glute medius a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, you know, get on a foam roller and try to figure out which shoulder tends to have more tension on it on the front side and activate your, your rotator cuff and your rhomboids and your, your pulling muscles on the side that's tight on the front, try to even the body out a little bit. So I, nothing's off limits. I use foam rollers and vibration and breathing exercises. Sometimes it's diaphragmatic breathing. Yeah. Watch somebody's ribs. That's some of the Liz's stuff. You know, tie, tie a yoga strap around them really tight. Oh, it's really crap posture. And then mm -hmm. and stand really tall and try to breathe under the yoga strap. Uh -huh. And uh, sometimes if you just get the, the diaphragm working a little bit different, you know, they yeah. get a little head rush and you get them back on the bike. So um, but what is my formula? Uh, look at the person, interview the person, try to get as much information ahead of time. See what the, how they're functioning in their current position. Take detailed notes where they are. Play with a little bit of foot correct uh, foot differences. And if I change something at the shoes, and I can see a difference, but they they don't notice a difference, then I know I'm in the driver's seat. Yeah. And I tell them, look, I'm in the driver's seat, and you just have to trust me on this because this is 200 an hour, and we mm -hmm. don't want to be here for 10 hours. So you just have to trust me; it's all guaranteed. But what I'm seeing and what you're describing are not the same thing. And I've been doing this a long time, so you mm -hmm. just gotta let me drive. Mm -hmm. And with Balzer, it was a whole different, you know, I mean, Chris is so switched on to his body and, and watching things uh, when you're working with somebody like that or like you or like Hog, you know, that's, that's a great part of working with Hog, right? Ah, fit me. It's like, oh, great. You know, <laughs> uh, so you have to, yeah, you have to sometimes just take the reins and it's, it's kind of a my way or the highway for the next three or four hours. Mm -hmm. And then uh, so sometimes it's, uh, you know, you do the assessment. And you do uh, some other muscle response testing. So we start looking at proprioceptive stuff through the eyes and the jaws and the spine. And, you know, do I use the magnets on every single bike fit? On every comprehensive fits, in some shape or form, the magnets come out. Mm. Um, but with some of the newer stuff that Steve's doing, 
this uh, low velocity stuff, mm -hmm. you can get some things to switch on and it'll, it'll cascade through the rest of the body. And I've probably done 30 or 40 of those sessions. Okay. Uh, I think three of those with Liz. Okay. And I've done three of those sessions with Liz, with Steve on Zoom, walking me through all the testing and stuff. And uh, I got to tell you, it's powerful. Yeah. But we've, every session with Liz has been different. Hmm. So that's what we did with Balzer. And that's, you know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of uh, that, that low velocity stuff. I'd love to go back down and, and spend another week immersed in it. But yeah. you get the central nervous system to switch on and start doing some different things. And, you know, suddenly they're sweating or they're getting dry mouth or they're feeling a little dizzy or, mm. ah, you're not used to getting that, uh, that amount of oxygen in your body. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I do the assessment. And then once I've done the assessment, try to change the body a little bit to improve for uh, symmetry and then start going back and forth with the position. So I make little marks. I'll use a lot of tape. Mm -hmm. So I have a starting point. And you still kind of drop in a little here. Smooth the seat forward. Oh, now the knee's coming out more. Mm, okay. Moved it forward. The hip's not dropping as bad. Now the left knee's coming out. Unscrew that left pedal. Either move the cleat medial or put a pedal washer in there. Ah, it didn't make a difference. Put the pedal back in. And so it's, it's really like setting up and tuning a drum kit. You know, you, you're angling the drums. You're, you're angling the cymbals, getting them within reach. You're muffling. Yeah. You're tuning. And as you, as you know, Colby, you, Sometimes you move one thing and something else falls apart. In fact, impacts everything. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So yep. I started the feet and if I make a change of the feet and they can't notice it, then I know I'm driving. So I, once I've done the feet and I think they're where they should be, then I look at the pelvis. And if that's not right yet, then we start doing some things with the seat position, playing mm -hmm. with angle, setback, up and down. Mm -hmm. And I do blindfolded stuff. Here's the killer. You some people get really loose on the bike when you put a blindfold on them when they're pedaling, mm -hmm. and some people get a lot more stable. I'd say one out of ten get more stable hmm. when they when they're not looking in the mirror, they're not overthinking everything. You just get this out of it. Interesting. Just tell them to cruise. Yeah, they'll just you know it's one out of ten, but mo most people get more unstable. Hmm. It's it's a series of experiments. It's a yeah, it is. It's there's a lot of trial and error, right? It's like okay, absolutely. absolutely. And any bike fitter, I think that it's one thing to say you're in the driver's seat, like, yeah, you have to take accountability or direct the fit for sure. But it's another for a bike fitter to claim that every change they make is going to be perfect or that they know exactly what the outcome of any given change is going to be. I think a fitter is telling you that as a client, yeah, there might be, uh, I, I just don't think that's the op. I'm not here to bash anybody else's work. That's not my MO at all. You know, there are a lot of good fitters out there. A lot of, a lot of really bright fitters in the universe for sure. But I'll say that if a fitter is telling you that every change they make is going to have a, de a definite outcome and that any part, every part of bike fitting is not trial and error, I think they're, I don't think that's accurate. I'll just say it that way. I also think that some of that trial error, trial and error, like I think you said recently, I, I re-listened to your podcast you did on the bike fit podcast with Damon, which I thought was great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out. That's a pod that's not going anymore. Hopefully they'll rekindle that, but I think you said that, you know, bike fitting is not a three hour process. It can be a three month process. Maybe I'm right. got that wrong, but there are some aspects of bike fitting that just require time. I mean, like your own experience with Steve is a perfect example. Yeah. You guys made a major change, but there's a lot of aspects of fitting that just take a lot of time to settle in. And some of that is contingent on what the client experiences. Uh, the perfect example is saddles. You know, I'll put someone on 10 different saddles while they're in sometimes, and maybe nine of them are SMPs. 
and they pick the one they think is the best, but we still don't know that it's going to work for them until they go do a couple five-hour rides and do a couple hard right. animal workouts and go right. up and down in the mountains and do all the things. And then they come back right. and go, okay, I thought a dynamic was the right one, but now I want to try a format or, oh, I thought this thing was great and not so much, or wow, it's amazing, whatever the feedback is. But the point being is I can't know definitively when they walk out the door, this is the perfect position for you. Right. There are aspects I'm pretty firm on, like, yeah, your saddle really shouldn't be any higher than it is right now. But there are other aspects that are like, look, we need to see how this settles in. And my job as a fitter is to coach them. Like, here's what you're looking for. We set your saddle nose angle at 3.9 degrees nose down. When you're on a long, false flat downhill with a tailwind, you're pedaling pretty hard, say 2% downhill. If you're constantly typewritering up to the nose and then having to scoot back, yeah. We, we overcook the saddle nose angle a little bit. On the other there hand, you if you're feeling pain in your, in your nether regions, when you're climbing all the time, or when you're going hard in the drops, okay, we might've gone a little too high. Right. So. Yeah. And it, you know, you, you can't look into a crystal ball and, and predict that in, in three or four weeks that you're going to be pedaling the same position, including the cleat positions. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got that method one, two, three thing. And, you know, I tend to go a lot with the method two stuff, yeah. but sometimes it's like, yeah, I nailed it to the method two, you know, according to the formula, this is exactly where you need to be. And it's like, no, man, I've, I have work. no control over that. Yet that mm. cleat needs to go forward just a little bit. Interesting. So it's a starting point. Yeah. It's a starting point. Yeah. But, um, and you know, this, these assumptions that toe down peddlers need to have their cleats further forward always, uh, uh, you know, Short distance hmm. rider. What about a long distance fixed gear rider? Where do you put those cleats? Hmm. Well, how do you know? You know, you set them up and you let them go ride and you get some feedback. Mm -hmm. And I remember Paolo used to, he had Rocket 7s that were, they were speed play specific before speed play specific was a big thing. Hmm. And he was just like, yeah, I just move the, I always move the cleats all the way in and I always move them all the way back. Yeah. No matter, no matter, no matter what the shoe is. Back. And that's how I know I a lot of riders who do it that way. Yeah. And it's just, they always go all the way back. Well, yeah, maybe, but mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you're given some follow-up and their body's changing over time, if you get some, some muscle activation stuff or some low velocity stuff or some magnet work, and you've, you've kind of played with their central nervous system a little bit and you've played with it more by playing with their foot correction yeah. well, in two to four weeks of riding, some of their issues that they came to the door with may be subsiding, but something new may be cropping up. And that when you were just so darn sure that you needed to, to angle that handlebar down just a little bit because those yep. wrists were cranked a little bit. It's like, and you just bring that bar up where they had been riding for 10 years and they, yeah, that thing in my shoulder that propped up totally went away mm -hmm. within two days of you raising the bar back up. So I still find myself getting into these paradigms of looking at somebody and thinking, man, their bars turned up a little too high or their hoods are a little bit too high or, uh, so I find that doing it eyes closed forces them to get a tactile feeling of, you know, unwrap all the bars, loosen up the hoods. And first we're going to, we're going to put the bar where you want it mm. and get them in the drops, get them yep. on the tops yep. and then blindfold them, pedal, you know, put it in the 53, 16 or whatever they can pedal. It's a pretty decent load. Mm -hmm. And while they're pedaling, pull that thing into position in the drops mm. and see what they come up with. And if they're, mm -hmm. if they're all, your wrist is all cranked. I can't do it on this side. Yeah. It's been broken. Cranked but up, you see yeah. a bunch of bunch of bends here. It's all stretched out here. It's like, yeah, yeah. that's kind of cranked up. So let them put it where they think that needs to be there. And then 
then you put it where you think it needs to be done, then maybe bridge the gap right. and finally come to an agreement. Okay, yeah, I think that's where the bar needs to be, especially these flatter top bars. If you sometimes mm. you do something at the drops, it makes it feel wonderful. Like the, the tail end of the bar is actually coming up towards you. It's like, oh, I can totally ride in the drops like that. Now put your hands on the tops. Oh, crap. That yep. didn't come out. So, exactly. so once again, it's like setting up your drum equipment. I can, mm. now I can get to this drum, but now it's banging into this other symbol. So I'm not have to either tweak the drum or tweak the symbol or tweak both a little bit. Or just put but, them on a wave bar. Oh, dude, I was, I was <laughs> like lusting over one of those things the other day. I, I have to show you at some point my, the, the wrap that I've done on my bar. It's, a, it's just a zip uh, okay. alloy bar, but um we used to ride Winwood bars. Remember those things? Yeah. With the yeah. Finger grips. Uh-huh. Well, those had a sweep to them. That was like they 2006. They had a back sweep. Yeah. And they had this little, this little cup that you could put your hands in. That's right. And, and I actually liked those bars. Mm-hmm. The thing I didn't like about it is the, the bar tape would always mess up because of those finger things. You couldn't get, unless like, it was the world's thinnest bar tape, you couldn't tape yeah, it on there. Without, yeah. Yeah. Uh-uh. Right. So, so you wrote it without tape, but in Texas here, that would probably work, but down there, yeah, I, mean, we, yeah, I live in the driest state that. in the universe. Like you can oh, ride yeah, with no yeah, bar yeah. tape. You'd probably be fine. But there, your hands would probably yeah. be flying off the tops all the time. Nah, no? Nah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, you know, I was looking at those, those uh, wave bars. And, man, would you, you know, I, I actually taped my bars closer to the fronts and closer to the corners yeah. to actually create. I think I've got like eight or ten levels of duct tape along the leading edges to actually create a slight sweep. Yes. And then at the at the bend, um, you know, we're not doing one of these days. I'll show you some pictures of it. Okay. I put I put zip ties, four really large zip ties around the corner of the bend, and then taped that together, and then put two layers of moleskin over that, uh-huh. and then wrapped it up. And now you have this little shelf for, for the lips. edge of your hands, okay. yeah, to okay. sit on. And you can't even yeah. tell it. Like if I take you over and look at my bike right now, you won't even be able to tell it. But when you set your hands on the hoods, you can feel and it. You get, a, you get another DI2 bike that's just the mm-hmm. same bar with none of that. So I love the idea of the wave bar, the, the little gap for the thumb to go in, sweep yeah. back. I mean, it totally makes sense. You know, if you externally rotate the shoulders a little bit, mm-hmm. relax the shoulders, it's going to have a cascading effect down the, the rear of the body. Yep. Variable yep. diameter handlebars, that's, that's, that's great. But um, mm-hmm you know, buying stuff right now with the gym and uh, business is tight and Kelly's tight, you know, it's like, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll get one of those bars soon enough. All right. But yeah, constantly, Good. constantly tweaking things. Um, yes. I, I look at a bike fit like tuning and drumming uh, or muffling a drum kit. You know, they used to make these torque wrenches for drums and you'd mm-hmm. say, oh, okay, well, I have a, you know, my, the, the, the diameter of my drum is, you know, 14 inches and it's got 12 lugs around and the depth is this. And you look up the chart and it says, oh, well, the torque setting to tune that drum is 7.5 Newton meters. And you dial the little thing to 7.5 and you, you go around until it clicks. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't, oh, now this next drum. Oh, this drum, you're going to tune it a little lower. This is only going to go to 5.5 Newton meters. So the idea is you can run around with this torque wrench until it clicks mm-hmm. and your drum's going to be in tune. And that wrong, that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, every drum's got its own resonant frequency. Of course. And you tune the you tune the pitch of the drum from the bottom head. The top head is just for the bounce. So okay. you get it to a reasonable tension so that your stick works right. Mm. 
and uh, then you use you raise and lower the temp the tension on the bottom head to find the resonant frequency of that drum. And mm-hmm. if you're a little low, it's going to have this real good. And then if you're too high, it's going to have a real high ringy pitch and it, it rings too long and it doesn't have any thick sound to it. So somewhere between something that sounds like mud and mm-hmm. something that's real high and tinny and ringy mm-hmm. is the re- resonant frequency. And after playing with that torque wrench out in LA for, I would say six months, I'm like, man, forget this thing. Just tune the drum. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the, the bike fitting stuff. It's like, okay, well, the thing says this. Yeah, but he's still got that wrist line. Right. So, right. yeah, we are going to move the nose forward a little bit or down a little bit or up. Or, yeah. So, yeah. always looking for the tricks, you know, always looking. I used to have a, I spent six months working on a pedal that had a weighted, uh, uh, one of these stud finder things that runs a straight level laser up the wall. Mm-hmm across the wall yeah i had i had one of those on a bearing on an old bmx just pedal axle and you'd screw you take the left crank off and you'd screw this thing in and you take all the the tension off the trainer and it was so heavy it would weight the pedal down and you hit the start button and it was Mm self-leveling and it would run a line up through the bottom bracket the center of the crank and you could measure setback yeah right yeah but it only took you about 20 minutes to set it up. To install the thing. <laughs> <laughs> the best measurement in the world, but yeah. Oh, so, so we're always looking for this, you know, it's, it's kind of a curse. You're always trying to make things as good as you can make them, but we're, we're on a timeline here. You know, we can't do a 10 hour like that they're going to fade. There's yep. a certain point where their eyes glaze over. <clears throat> you're starting to lose them. Yep. So um, there's been some things that I've done. The joke is Steve has taught me 300 things and I've taught him three. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, he's taught me so many things, but the the idea of using the cable end to figure out where the first metal is through a shoe. I still credit you with that pretty much every time I do a fit. Uh, he made fun of me when I showed up in 2012. <laughs> when I showed up in 2012 with the uh, oh, by the way, that the cable end thing, he let me sit on that for six months. He saw me doing it with Paolo before Paolo's thing. He's just kind of looking you know, with this sour look on his face, you bloody uh-huh. Americans, you're always looking for the lazy way to get out of things and call the <laughs> attorneys and your football players with your helmets and your pads. It's not even a bloody touchdown anymore. They don't even have to they just dance around. Look at me. I made it across the line. Well, you know, you see, you bloody Americans are so lazy. Yes. I'm like, well, that's kind of coarse. Yeah. And six months later, he emails me, Oh, that thing with the cable in best thing I learned all year. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's like, dude, you let me sit on that for six months? <laughs> and, put it to the test. So, so the, the three things I've taught Steve is the, is the cable thing, yep. how, to, how to use a laser to check setback. And he balked at that until he saw one of his uh, employee, one of his clients was watching him trying to deal with the two tools in his glasses. <laughs> He's like, Steve, that's way too hard. Yeah. And so, then, you know, they see him struggling. He's like, here, just put this here. So now he's using that. Okay. And then the third thing is, you know, he taught me how to use a magnet with my arm and after three years of playing with that it was right before interbike i came up with that drill. that drill wand thing yeah and steve's looking at it and he goes what about the magnets in the drill and, you know he gave me a hard time but yeah within six months he had his own thing so yeah he taught me 300 things i've taught him three um how do i use my training as a personal trainer in the bike fit look at where their tendencies are and see if you can do something to change them even a little bit hmm. i used to do these long workouts like it's like a 70 minute workout, 60 minute workout with a 10 minute warm up. And, um, you know, I want you to do this three times a week. It's eight or 10 exercises. And here's your reps and your sets and the exercises and personal training on the net had these little videos that they would show a 
a model going mm -hmm. through these things. And some of these people, you get them back 18 months later, three years later, they can't do any of that stuff. They did it for two or three weeks. Mm. And it's like, dude, if I got 70 minutes, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go ride. So now for the past four or five years, I just, no more than three. I give them something they can do in no more than 10 minutes every day of the week. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest three things that I think could help you route functionally mm -hmm. off the bike? And if they feel good, like if it's opposed to your pelvic tilt, are you showing them how to like grab a hold of their fascia and open up their hip flexor while they're really squeezing that glute and tilting mm -hmm. their head a little bit? And they get up and walk around and they can feel a difference. Mm -hmm. You just tell them, you know what, get up in the morning, take a shower and do this four point thing, do this hip flexor stretch, mm -hmm. do some part to your pelvic tilt, you know, and do some right emphasis for your rotations because of your back. And yep. it, it's stuff that it feels good. It's like, man, it really feels good to move my torso to the right without moving my hips. Mm -hmm. All right. You got a six to eight minute workout. Do that in any day that ends in Y. Mm -hmm. Super simple. If they can get those things under control, then it's going to help. Uh, it's going to help them functionally, and it's also going to expedite the adaptation. But it's okay. got to feel good, and they got to want to do it. Uh, unusual techniques do I use, use in bike fits? Oh gosh, I mean, how many times have you cut up a pair of insoles and use something thinner on the forefoot and thicker in the back end? Uh, stacking G8s. Uh, uh -huh. You got you got a level five or a level four is not enough. A level five is too much. How about a level four with some tape added to it or a level four with the level one with the, with the flat fin taken off and stack in the level one under the four, duct tape that in position so it's progressive. So uh -huh. it collapses a little bit, but then it, as it gets to the bottom end of the motion, yeah. it has more support to it. As long as they muscle test strong, good and to it's go. fair game, yeah. Yeah, okay. dude. So cutting things, stretching things, yeah. uh, you know, Dremel tool. Mm -hmm. You know, a bike fitter doesn't know how to use a Dremel tool. You know, it's like you, you hadn't had the right client come in. There's going to be times <laughs> where you have to use a Dremel tool. Um, Got to get the dynamic angle right on that Pinarello seat post, right? Uh, Damon asked me, he says, what's the weirdest tool you've ever used in a bike fit? Uh, it's like a cheese grater. Cheese grater. Cheese grater. The hell? So if you look at GH, you'll see that it's got these three little uh, segments that are right in front of the arch. It's got these two little lines. Mm -hmm. And triathletes. Uh, that don't wear socks or people that are really, really sensitive. Like if I put you in a pair of G8s, right. And I had the ball, you, you know, some people are a medium, some people are large. If those, if those things are too close to the ball of your foot yep. uh, and you're real sensitive, uh, you can feel a Ben Keating race car guy. He's like, man, I'm feeling this area under here. I, I can feel those little lines. So I'd, I'd take them out on the back porch and take them on the sidewalk and do three or four scrapes on the sidewalk and then come back in and try that. It's like, Oh, totally better. Mm -hmm. And then I just came up with the cheese grater because it's faster than going outside and scraping it on the sidewalk. A little simpler. Yeah. Yeah. And Plus. then the, the, the arch supports on the, the G8s, they got the flat section and the arch support. Sometimes the, the little piece that comes off the front, it's just a little bit too close to the ball of the foot. Yeah. Like, they like that level five support, but they're feeling that little flat edge. You put them on the level four, they don't feel the fat, flat edge, but they don't have the arch support. So you put mm -hmm. the level five in there and you cut off the last three millimeters of it. Yeah. You're like, holy cow. And when you, you know, you take it back three mil and they don't feel that so much. Not only are you solving a problem, but a client is seeing that, man, this guy's really taking this thing to the mat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're down there looking at their foot and they can see that we're not just trying to get a job done. We're trying to do the best, best thing that we can possibly do. Yeah. In a way we can make this better. Yeah. So, and a lot of that, I, you know, I honestly, I learned with you, Colby. I mean, 
I've still got some some beat up. Uh, I've got some really cherry bonds that have never even been worn. Mm-hmm. And I crashed my 403s. And I remember you talking about putting a an upper of one shoe on a on a sole of another shoe. I'm like, man, I wonder if I could get those things on there. And so, I've often, I've actually thought about the same project <laughs> with the 403 Bont hybrid, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, just wait till the lower shoe comes out. That'll. Yeah, that'll I'm really excited about that. Or are yeah. you peeling up your peeling up the edge of your S and P and getting after after it with the Dremel tool? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, that takes some guts. That takes some guts. You just got to tinker with stuff every once in a while, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. If you're not, if you're a bike fitter and you're not a tinkerer, I would argue that maybe bike fitting isn't your, your highest calling. Uh, your passion. It's kind of what, kind of what bike fitters are. They're tinkerers. You know, yeah. they're, they're two, two layers or one layer of duct tape kind of guys. So, oh, yeah. you know, and balls are starting to do that now. I went to, Went up there and visited him a couple of times. I drilled him some mountain bike midfoot cleats. Dude, he has a cherry, uh, rigid, fat, uh, wicked. That's I think an '87 model with the U-brake on it. With you know all the stuff. Of course he does. Perfect. He had me had me go ride it, and it's like riding that bike. You know this '87 model fat with perfect yeah. paint. Yeah. Of course, in the rain. Yeah. Come on, it'll be all right. We'll wipe it down. It's like, dude, I do not want to ride this cherry bike. And I don't want to ruin on. your nice bike. Anyway, I went up there a couple of times and worked with him and he was watching me work and I'm looking at a client that's coming in for a refit. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. This is the triathlete. The, day, the morning I was supposed to be leaving, he's taking me to the airport in, I don't know, three hours or something. Some guy's on his way to the West Coast and he's having knee problems. Is there any way you can see me? My daughter's got a soccer game. Where I, you know, I, I've got this two hour window. I could come see you. So Chris said, yeah, come on over to the house and put him on. He's got a really nice little studio. Mm-hmm. set away from his house and we looked at him on the train and we felt his cleats and he had some speed plate cleats that were they might have been light action cleats anyway chris didn't have any and i looked over in my back and i had a fresh pair of cleats it's like dude these cleats are totally clapped out all right put the new cleats on there and the guy's like he couldn't feel a difference but chris and i are like that totally looks better dude mm-hmm. and i didn't i didn't have the time for the muscle response testing or the jig or any of that stuff out i'm like you know what I'm seeing something on that left foot. Chris, let me just, I want to try one. I'm not going to move his cleat. Just let me try something with his insole. And I tore off about a 10 millimeter width and about a 21 millimeter length of duct tape and put it on the medial side of the left heel and, or the right, whatever it was, and uh, put him back on the bike. And balls are so quick. In, in three strokes, it's like, stop, do that again. So we put a second one on there. He goes, mm-hmm. that's even better. Let's try it again. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Chris. Tried it again. And no, nah, too's good. And that's the first time Chris saw me just use a tiny bit of duct tape mm-hmm. for just a small amount of medial wedge. It wasn't even a degree, but you sure. could see it. You know, yeah. you can't cut yeah. your own hair. You can't tailor your own suit. You can't see what your feet look like when you're pedaling. <laughs> can't and, see your own butt when you're guy, riding a bike. Yeah. And, uh, and Balzer, the way he was looking at me and looking at this guy's feet, mm-hmm. he's like, what made you decide to do that? It's like, I don't know. I do that kind of stuff all the time. You know, mm-hmm. it's either going to make a difference or it won't. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Tilting the cleat just a little bit, tilting the heel just a little bit, adding a tiny bit of arch support mm-hmm. with my bike fit clients. As long as they still test strong with muscle testing, life is good. If we need to trim away a little bit of a, of a, a tongue, it's being folded over because you got a heel drop a person that, that tongue's all just in the way. Mm-hmm. And you show them, look at all those lines, dude. We yeah. cut some of this away. That's less of that hitting against your foot. Hmm. 
And, you know, when you're about to cut away part of a $450 shoe. Better be right about it. Yeah. It's like, dude, I'm going to guarantee this. I really think you're going to like it. And if they're really sketchy about it, I'll fold it over and duct tape it down. Yeah. Stick it under. Okay, now pedal that. Tell me, do you feel a difference? No. Take off the tape, fold it back up. Do you feel a difference? No. We're not cutting anything. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they're just too freaked out about cutting something. I won't, but but, uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Oh, my gosh. Uh, Track writer. Last name, Love. Marianne Love? Tracky? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. World, uh, world champion age group or something, 2006, 2007. I cut the tongue of her Giro's and she sent me a text like, I don't know, six months later. It's like I was I was riding my bike the other day. I got off and I looked at my shoes and I saw where you'd cut that off. And I just thought about how many hundreds of thousands of repetitions had gone around with that thing against my foot. Mm-hmm. And then you take it out and it, that thing's just not touching my foot anymore. So getting rid of stuff you don't need, adding support where you need it, giving them breathing exercises, giving them visualization techniques, mm-hmm. learning how to relax under load. That was another thing that uh, uh, Don Perry taught me. He says, when you're playing, as the, as the song tempo starts to increase and the dynamics go up, the tendency when you play louder is to speed up. And the tendency when you play softer is to slow down. Mm-hmm. So it's really challenging to play super loud and powerful at a very even beat. Keep the same without tempo. speeding yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, hmm. he says, so as things get more challenging, you want to focus on relaxing. Hmm. And and so I I take that on the bike. It's like, okay, great. Now you're trying to turn 450 watts, and you're grinding your teeth, and you're raising a shoulder, and you're you're clenching your hoods, and it's like, mm-hmm. dude, just turn it. And yeah. And if they're one of these where the elbows go up and out, it's like, hey, you know, focus more on relaxing as you're, as you're loading things up. So little mm-hmm. tips on form and technique can go a long way. A little bit of video, a little off the bike exercises. And in three or four weeks, let's, let's take a look at you again. I, I don't know about you, but I would say that 80% of my fits wind up staying in the same position they went out the door with. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what would you say? Would you say greater than 50%? Oh, for you sure. For me, you I mean, maybe really minor tweaks, but uh, like a couple mils. But I would say eighty-five percent of my fits end yeah. up staying where they are. Ninety. That's maybe. because you took all you took all that time mm. and and dove in, and then as they as they do start to change over time, and their body starts to relax, well, as they start to relax into that four hundred and thirty watts or whatever it is, the time trial position, whatever they're doing, mm. as their body starts to ride differently, they start to pedal a little bit different. And you said, okay, well, this hip is tight and this hip is twisted and this foot tends to flex and this foot tends to drop at the heel and mm-hmm. you give them all this information. And as they start to change over time at four to six weeks, yeah, you might tweak things a little bit or you may just give them an extra exercise or a combination of both. Mm. A good example is when I went to train with Hog after three years of riding his position and he dropped my seat and gave me a five millimeter left shim. When I went down there three years later, uh, raised the seat five mil and took out the five mil shim. Mm-hmm. Dude, uh, did my, <laughs> my leg length exploded. change? How, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. How did that change? And you're still stuck with this formula of, yeah. oh, you set my position, so I must be dialed for life. And he mm-hmm. goes, no, no, no. You, you've been focusing on the hip drop, and you've, you've gotten a little more functional, and you've loosened up your tibialis muscles a little bit, and you've worked yep. on your posture on the bike. Yep. And lo and behold, you've been riding more relaxed. So, yeah, you need to come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not like he's putting a goniometer on you and saying, this has to be 4.86 millimeters to go up. Ah, let's go up a little bit. Ah, let's go a little more. Mm-hmm. Oh, now he's starting to wobble, go down a little bit. Yeah. Let's get yeah some of, of that's about being tapped in too. I mean, I remember while I was training with Steve at one point, he kind of, he, you know, after a week and a half or so, he kind of lets you take the reins on some of the decisions and he'll start testing you a little bit. I'll start asking you. And at one point a client was in there and he was like, yeah, I feel like your saddle needs to come, come back a little bit. What do you think, Colby? And I was like, I'd say 12 mils. And he was like, he looked at me and said, that's exactly the number I had in my head. Wow. Now, who knows if, I mean, that honestly, could, that could just be me and Steve being tapped into each other. I mean, mm-hmm. this is going to sound super woo to some people, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Like when you're on wave with someone, you know, you hear stories all the time about, oh, I was just thinking of calling you. And then the phone rings yeah. and it's that person like yeah. when you're tapped into somebody and you're on their, their wavelength. When you're synchronized with what their processes and what their intent is, a lot of times you can come to understand maybe what their line of thought is before they verbalize it. Correct. So it could have been that simple, but I also think bike fitting is about being tapped into that client and understanding the more you understand about their context and who they are and the types of preferences they have and their athletic history and their injury history and their flexibility habits and the strength and conditioning, then yeah. you can look at them on the bike and have an instinct. It's an instinct of, man, this person really needs this, but if we push it on that, I can tell it's just not going to go well. They need time for that. And to go back right. to your earlier question about how many fits change, I would say in the, you know, the tune-up period of less than three months, when I do a full fit, someone included in my fit process is a tune-up where they come in and we talk about how they're settling and they tell me about how you know this got sore and that adapted or this or that, if they have questions. And if we need to make changes, we make changes. Very few of those change in that tune-up period window. But year over year, I have clients whose positions have changed quite a bit because Correct. human bodies evolve and they're mm-hmm. adapting to load. They're adapting to new stretching routines or lack of stretching. They're adapting to you know the strength and conditioning program they started. Their, their race load changes, their ride volume changes, their stress changes, you know whatever, their job changes. They used to be on their feet all the time and now they're in a desk. Like, all these things impact a body's function, just like Absolutely. you have that right side bias from years of drumming, right? And everyone has a right side bias in their hips if they drive a car because automobile pedals are not centered with the body line. They're shifted to the left. So that right there tends to give most people right hip drop on its own if you drive a car, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I would say- so- Go ahead. Go so ahead. I, want to, I want to backtrack a little bit. About yeah. you, you, know, you talk about having a conversation with the client, really involving the client in the thing. When do you feed them and when you teach them how to mm-hmm. fish? And yep. one of the things I tell people is, you know, you may not be a bike fitter, but I once we find a position that really works for you and you get kind of tapped into, oh, this is what a bike should feel like. You know, it took me over a month to get used to Steve's position. But once I got there and then I trusted the position and I knew it because I didn't have pain, but hmm. some people will know it because they'll, they'll start getting better time splits or the triathlete people will feel better when they start to run. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, now we did something and we tweaked everything and we did a bunch of stuff with your shoes and your seat. And we gave you some breathing exercises and we played with your arrow bars. And now once you've got to that, as your body starts to change and tweak before you come see me, Maybe you could think about, do I need to pull that arrow bar out a little bit or pull mm-hmm. it back a little bit? Or, you know, maybe I could try. I'm, I'm noticing that I'm getting this chafing along the perineum when I really go under load. I think I might need to have that nose go down just another half degree, a, a quarter turn on the bolt or yep. 
it's like, you know, don't be afraid to play with your own position. Mm. You know, back in the day with mountain bike racing is like, oh yeah, you broke a spoke. What are you going to do? Well, you mm. either fixed it or you're going to walk. You're going to fix right. your flat. You're going to, you know, now you get a hand up of wheels and you get all this hand up stuff, but you know, you, we want you to kind of learn how to feed yourself. And then when you get stuck, call me. Mm. But once, you know, I've got a couple of clients from out of state that now we're actually starting to do some Zoom stuff. Yep. And they'll say, I've got some notes on something and I've, I've got an idea about something, but I want to have you look at me first. Mm-hmm. And with those people, I only do the rollers. Yep. It's like, no, yep. we're not doing the kicker. We're not doing that. <laughs> and all three of them have Grotex and love them. Grotex oh. rollers are kill, dude. Yeah. They've got five magnetic resistance. They're ultra smooth. You can stack them up on a couple of wooden yoga blocks and create like about a four degree incline and the right yeah. won't go shooting out the back yeah i've yeah they're they're sweet yeah but, yeah um, so i'm you know talking about moving into fit spaces i'm definitely going to have a, a platform cut out for rollers so that i can teach because i've had some inside ride rollers in my studio and i've had some riders ride them but what i want is to make it as actionable as possible for my clients to ride rollers even if they've never ridden them before and i think absolutely. a big part of that is raising the platform around the rollers so that if they have to put a foot down it's not yeah. the hide the bike plus the floor. And they you know, need the to be like close to a, close to a yeah. wall or something. So if yeah, something yeah. goes south, they can put a foot down and put an arm and out. Lean on it. Yeah. Uh, when Balzer was here, you know, we did his fit. I mean, we, we adjusted things on the stationary trainer, but we tested his position on the rollers. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's really, as far as indoor riding goes, that's, that's kind of the gold standard for improving stability. I agree. If you can ride the rollers a little bit better. And, well, uh, as Alan Lim told me years ago, if you can ride the rollers, with only one leg clipped in and no hands, which gets a little bit circusy, <laughs> but you got, I don't know that I agree. That's the epitome of stability, but I'll say riding rollers with no hands, riding rollers with only one foot clipped in. Yeah. You get some pluses and minuses there, but I agree. Well, balls are, balls are sat straight up and covered his dominant eye. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I'm like, you know, I'm yelling at him, dude, you're going to break Easy. my studio. Easy. You know, he's right next to mirrors and stuff. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's he's yelling in the room. I'm not going to say what he was saying, but, you know, <laughs> he's like, I can't believe this. I'm riding with my dominant eye. Yeah. You know, it's like, don't you want to do anything? It's like, dude, you are riding with your dominant eye covered on rollers with no mm-hmm. hands smoothly. Mm-hmm. Why would I move anything? You right. Know? right. So, yeah, if you can find a way to improve the stability and they can experience that, then, then it's like all that pressure deflates at the end. It's like, ah, oh, I spent all this money on a bike fit, but you know what? There's no question that I'm better. Oh, Here's and then we get some result. exercises. We get a, we get a follow up. Yeah. And uh, you know, Steve always under promises and over delivers, as you know. You send him three sentences, he replies with two paragraphs. So mm-hmm. it's that you know, just go for it. Yeah. Make the best uh, best of what you can do. Yeah. Uh, some of the biggest fit disasters. Colby, what's the biggest fit disaster you ever had? Or one of them? That's a good question. I mean, I've had a few, you know, we all as hog fitters, we, we all have money back guarantees on our work, which I'm a big believer in. I mean, if you took your car to a mechanic and the engine didn't start, and then, you know, you drove back to your house the next morning, you got up and spent a thousand dollars on your car and the engine didn't start, you'd immediately call that mechanic be like, what's the deal? But for some reason, bike fitting doesn't work like that. You know, you have a, hear a lot of stories about people go to a bike fit and they've got an issue and they go to three bike fits and they still have this chronic saddle sore, chronic hamstring pain, chronic, you know, whatever back pain. So I feel like Steve's MO is to offer that money back guarantee to help 
offer some, some solidarity and some reassurance to what is an industry that has expanded rapidly in the last 10, 15 years and, and is undergoing some growing pains. Um, so I, probably my biggest fit disasters for me would be, I've had a couple clients where it just didn't work. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, you always take lessons from those, but you know, I, I don't have any bit. Well, I'll, I will tell one fits. Okay. I'll tell one fit. You don't have story. to use a person's name. You can, of course. You know. No, I had a client. This is a long time ago. Uh, many years ago, I would say maybe eight, nine years ago. And I had a client who had, I don't remember what it was. It was, you know, an F 10 dogma or something, some $12,000 bike. And, and it was super nice. And I got the thing in the trainer and the guy hopped up on there and I made the mistake of not Somehow I didn't get it quite in the trainer quite right. Yeah. And the bike popped out of the trainer when he was on it and he came down and he didn't come down hard. He didn't break anything on him. And he didn't somehow manage to not rip a hole through his seat stay because when a bike falls over in the trainer, the first thing is the seat stay hits the bar of the trainer. Right. And, and somehow that didn't happen. So I came out of it really lucky. And I was, I was just going, wow, this was the dumbest mistake in the world. You know, it's something that I need to, for now, every single fit I do, I am cranking on that Kurt so hard. I've got a Kurt Connect that I use on the Saris platform, the MP1 uh -huh, that uh -huh. moves. That's my current setup. And man, that thing is not coming in there. Like half the time I have to unweld it to get it out of there. But oh yeah, I that was a pretty big disaster in the sense that he ended up with a pretty good scratch on his frame. And this was a, an immaculate new F10. Mm. If I remember correctly, it was an F10. Uh. And, I mean, dude, that's just such a bummer for me to be responsible for that scratch, but it could have been so much worse. The guy could have yeah. hit his head on the corner of my platform. Yeah. He could have broken a collarbone falling out of a trainer. Like, yeah. so I'll say that, uh, you know, a lot of things go wrong in a bike fit. That was one of my bigger ones that I've had. Lesson so, learned. What about you? You want to share one? Oh, I've got lots of them. I, it's, it seems like about every 18 months or so I have something that no matter what I try, it doesn't go right. We usually get off to a weird start with, you know, I send them a questionnaire and they answer, they answer everything with one word answers. Mm -hmm. What are your goals for this fit to get dialed in? Right. Okay. Right. Um, so it usually starts with limited information and uh, people that don't, you know, they don't know what I do and they're usually just, okay, I'm here. The thing is three hours. So it's nine. I'll be out of here by 12. I'll meet such and such for lunch and then we'll go for a ride and everything will be hunky dory. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll race person, next Saturday. <laughs> this person had been wearing, very high heel shoes for decades, had been mm. riding for decades, uh, feet that were just hammered from the high heel shoes. And also they were just, you know, bunions and really wide forefoot and really narrow heel. And, and it was like everything outside. When the person, she applied, I, I said, look, how about this? How about you come down here and I'll take a look at you. And I'll, I just want to look at your shoes and your feet mm -hmm. and see if it's something I can do. And when I saw how, offset everything and how wide her foot was on the Brannock device in the forefoot. I was like, these shoes are too short for you. They're way too narrow, mm -hmm. but you have a big gap in the heel. So the shoes are too long. You need a significantly wider shoe than this. Mm -hmm. And I really think you should get some Revo custom shoes. I think you should have custom shoes made. This, I've never seen a foot this wide at this length. Yeah. So it was a, you really? It's like, yeah, I mean, you've been having problems for 20 years and you're asking me what I suggest. So it started off with, okay, go spend, you know, 1200 bucks on some shoes. And she came back and then every adjustment I tried just made it worse. 
Mm. And and about two months into it, she's like, you know what? There's get it. There's no change. I'm in just as much pain. Mm. And the seat was up, and the seat was down, and forward and back, and the cleats were forward and back, and a little shim mm. and no shim, and mm. and muscle response testing, and it was one of those things that just about everything I did either made no difference or made it worse. Yeah. And had to give the money back. Mm. And that was when I learned. You have to see what's coming through the door. I talked to people before they came in for a bike fit to get an idea of what their expectations are. And yep. if they're giving a lot of short answers and they can't really describe in detail what they're experiencing, uh, or you get them in and you just look at their feet, you know, in hindsight, I would now say, you know what? Take two years off the high heels, take two years off the bike, go do what Colby's been doing, learn how to function with your feet mm. and, you know, get some well-fitting shoes and get some massage in your lower legs work your tibialis muscles, work on your posture. Get your Achilles and long and your calf back. Let's give you a couple of years, but I was trying so hard. It was right after I trained with Steve. I was, I was mm. trying so hard to be everything to everyone. Yep. I bit off more than I could chew. So I see one of those about every 18 months or so. I had one guy come in. <laughs> he, he, he called me way ahead of time. Are you going to be available on this Friday? This very specific Friday. It's like, yeah, actually I will be available that Friday. afternoon. Okay. Calls me like three or four months ahead of time. And he was at, what are those things called? The uh, Volta? Physique Volta? Do you remember those things? Yeah. Yeah. It's just that it's this curved, just this gnarly seat. I'm looking mm -hmm. at it and I'm looking at him. It's like, dude, is that covered? Oh, I love it. It's like you and Joe would say, yeah, I love my area. <laughs> right. Right. Shane McCray, dude, you got to ride an area. It's the best thing ever. You're going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, I thought I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. This guy got a fit on his Friday. He didn't ask any questions. He just went through everything. Mm. Went to a race on Saturday morning, finished oh. mid-back, and mm. Monday he wanted his money back. Oh. <laughs> just, oh, man. So when somebody calls you for a very specific day, three months yeah. ahead of time, yeah. and they're, they're kind of dodgy on their answers, yeah. you know, fair warning, you know, you, you got somebody who's not telling you everything. So, yeah, ask lots of questions get a good idea of, of, uh, what you're going into. Context and, is uh, king. If you can't figure it out, just, just be honest and tell them, I, I don't know if I can help you. I'm not getting enough information back. Right. And, and that's, that's when I, I always have a phone call. I always send the questionnaire mm -hmm. and tell them that this is not it's three hours. You may not be wonderful. It could be a month later. Are you cool with that? Are you mm -hmm. cool with driving all the way up from wherever and staying in a hotel and doing a fit and leaving out of here six hours later in a funk. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable no, with peeling away the layers of your onion? Yeah. That's what we're doing, right? Absolutely, dude. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, bike fitting in a nutshell, you yeah. know. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. Fit disaster. Right. Well, so I've had, I have, a, I usually have about one disaster a year and one really bad disaster about every 18 months or so. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that Steve says is manna from heaven. Oh, great. You get to give somebody a thousand bucks back for a bike fit or $800 or whatever it is you've charged them. Mm -hmm. Manna from heaven. What did you learn? Right. So, you know, that, that, that sting is, he says, just treat it like tuition. Yeah. Yeah. This one kid, this one kid within two weeks, wanted all his money back. And he sent me this very long email threatening 
And if you're not willing to stand up to your words and do what you say you're going to do, I will contact an attorney and make sure I get my money back. Mm-hmm. Doing all this ridiculous stuff, marching in place with my eyes closed and waving magnets around me and pushing on my heart harder sometimes and less hard at sometimes and telling mm-hmm. me that something is strong and something is weak. It's just a bunch of garbage. I mean, he's just this long email. It's like, mm-hmm. how would you like to process your refund? I'm not even going to try to defend anything, yeah. but yeah. you know, so yeah, COVID I've turned down a minimum of 15 to 20 bike fits mm. with these people that have come off the couch. They, they went down to the shop. They started riding on a Wahoo, you know, yep. they went and dropped big cash. They dropped two grand on a, on a bike and a Wahoo mm-hmm. and they've been riding indoors and been riding what? Six months. Yeah. I got this knee pain after about five months. What do you do? I, I ride every day for about 45 minutes on the trainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I'm your guy. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Good for you for knowing, knowing when you can help people and knowing when they're better served by someone else, perhaps. Right. Same thing in personal training. If somebody yeah. calls me up and a guy had, you know, he, he was wanted to lose some COVID weight. He wanted to do three days a week at uh, high intensity stuff with a lot of cardio and uh, high intensity. You know, he, he wanted in six weeks, he wanted to lose X amount of weight mm. working out at 6 a.m. in the morning. Mm. And I already had clients on two of the days that he wanted. And I was like, you know what? There's two other trainers over there that do a lot of cardio stuff. Um, I'm not the guy that's going to stand there and watch you on a treadmill and right. tell you what your heart rate is. That's, I don't think that's a good use of my time or your money. So yeah. I'm, I'm good at working with the, the people that I send to Liz, you know, teaching people how to breathe and how to stabilize mm-hmm. better and wake up their proprioception and, you know, just learn how to function more symmetrically mm-hmm. and with less pain. So yeah. Awesome. So there's bike fitting in a nutshell. There you go. Well, Jerry, uh, it's getting late here. We've been going for a while. I want to make sure you get home in time to have dinner with your family, but hopefully they didn't uh, leave you a cold turkey out on the, on the counter there, but. No, mother-in-law's coming over tonight. Hi, Grammy. Okay. So uh, yeah, Charles is working at a restaurant now. So it's, we still have cinnamon around in Milo and, okay. you know, we still got the cats and the dog and it's a little different story every night. I told Kelly I'd be doing this and, So it's all cool. Colby, I really enjoyed being on it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jerry, for making the time. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I love your stories and, and uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with our audience. It's been great. And I hope that you and I can get down to visit Steve sometime, or maybe you and I need to just get together here stateside and compare notes and dork out on some stuff. Totally. Great. Yeah, totally. Okay. All All right, man. All the best, Jerry. Thanks. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident. Gratitude. Gratitude.